Hello and welcome to episode... Oh god, that was high energy. Hello and welcome to episode 210 of the Creighton Crowbar. <laughs> My name is Chris Thurston and tonight on the 11th of October I'm joined by Tom Senior. Hello. And Tom Francis. Hello. Good evening, gentlemen. It feels a long time since I've done this because it is. Um, mm. Hi. Hi, everybody. Thanks. I've been away loads, actually. It's one of the reasons there was no Bloodborne last week. Sorry about that. We'll fix that, though. True. What we should talk about is things from more recently and further away. And further away includes 10 years ago, which is when... <laughs> <laughs> this is... I'm very jet-lagged. Is when the orange box came out. Yeah. Yeah, 10 years since Valve, by some people's estimation, last released a game. <laughs> <laughs> that actually does not feel crazy to me. Like, often when these numbers come up, I'm like, what? It's been five years since that? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. But this, like, that does feel like a long time ago. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, I agree with you. Five years is a more kind of terrifying life increment in some ways. Like five years since Dishonored, which it also was this week. Yeah, that's is crazy. nuts to me. <laughs> like Dishonored came out equidistant between this day in the year of our Lord 2017 and the orange box. Like, how is that acceptable? Like Time. Life, life before Strange. Portal and Team Fortress 2 is kind of mind boggling. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that, you know, we should talk about it. I mean, so obviously, you know, Tom, this is on your mind because PC gamers had a big old big old orange week we turned our website orange our entire carousel <laughs> went orange with five separate features including an interview with valve and uh, we, we ran tom's um uh orange box reviews as well yeah th- three hot articles from <laughs> <laughs> yep from me a, on pcgamer.com at the cutting edge PC gamer. <laughs> come to us for all your current gaming news uh which is lovely actually because it kind of um reading those reviews reminded me of how much of a big fucking deal it was like mm, a, yeah. a box that was like worth a normal amount of money that had three 90 plus games in that, and most of them like two of them no one expected to be that good really especially portal i mean team fortress 2 everyone hoped but it just turned they out portal, be... game, portal was the puzzle game tacked on to the orange box yeah, right and then it just much, happened yeah. to also be this epoch defining <laughs> just redefinition of what a first person adventure game might be and for me one of the first kind of games to set off the internet in a way that happens mm. more regularly now the first game to really kind of be embraced by reddit and to just create so many memes and to become a kind of cultural you know artifact in a way that games had i don't remember having really done so before yeah it was a an unusual case as well because well in every way but um we reviewed the three separately um and gave them separate scores even though they come as a package and usually um at least back then i don't know if this is current but um our policy was sort of we are a buyer's guide and um uh we're reviewing the buying decision and so the price does factor in and um uh and things like that but in this case it, it it just seemed like such a massive oversight to not give individual scores to these things or actually like evaluate each one in its own merits mm. like as a um uh as a journal of criticism or whatever you want to call it as um uh a place that tells you what they think of games it seemed ridiculous not to give these three games individual um, mm. i think it's the right call yeah. it's just you know so different i mean it's amazing to to bundle those three, like um, in one of the answers that Robin Walker sent back to us, he was saying about how the orange box just sort of defied retail's conception of what games, <laughs> games were, of what a box on a shelf looked like. Yeah. But it also defied just kind of uh, traditional, you know, business assumptions about specific games for specific audiences, and you have to market directly to those audiences and then sell your game to them. Whereas <laughs> the orange box was like, we've got completely three separate genres, totally separate <laughs> things. The puzzle game thing was a bonus, but TF2 is like a, a, as big a game in its own right as. Uh, Half-Life 2 Episode 2, and we're just going to put them all in the box and, you know, sell mm. fuckloads. <laughs> it's quite clever in a way, because it, 
I don't know if it was intended to do this because I wouldn't say it was necessarily a very valvey thing to do, but it really established the voice of that company quite strong. I mean, I think their games to that date had done that to some extent, yeah. like Half-Life, but you know, uh, Half-Life and Half-Life 2 and Half-Life 2 Episode 1 were like the product of like sort of very high degrees of craft and it kind of took place rather anonymously. Yeah. Like this was like the beginning of Valve humor in a big yeah, exactly. way, in a really big way. Yeah, sure. And also, but also Half-Life Episode 2 in a different way was quite a lot more human. Like I remember it as being like really leaning into like more of the relationship stuff and more of the kind of more, you know, less sort of, you know, cold sci-fi and more sort of about people and a drama and a family drama and, and a family relationship and tragedy and that kind of thing. And so it was a really big statement of like, that's the thing that binds the box together, right? Is like, this is a snapshot of what Valve values at this point in time. And these are the three things that we've pulled together. Yeah. And like, I think both Portal and TF2, you could reasonably call comedy games. Mm, yeah. Like they're, yeah. They're well, both designed to be funny and they hadn't really done that before. Like, yeah. There were jokes in Half-Life 2, but. Well, almost, many. I mean, the, you know, outside of point and click adventure, there aren't that many funny games generally yeah and things like and things like the the very first uh, meet the team video for the heavy which was like kind of the never really been a trailer like that that i can yeah. think of um and yeah and that's not to say nothing of, of portal and kind of the way it i mean you say it was the first game to like turn into memes it was one of the first games where that was kind of like a deliberate possibility rather than an mm. accidental possibility if that makes sense yeah. right like you know, it had jokes, really good jokes in it. And then people liked repeating and sharing and quoting those jokes in them, you know. I'm, I'm still astonished that more games aren't funny. Yeah. I'm, I'm really, I mean, I know it's hard to find people who are funny to write the things, but at the same time, that you know, it enlivens a game. And I'll forgive so much in a game if it makes me laugh. And games mm. almost never make me laugh unless it's by accident. Well, I mean, <laughs> that's why people forgive the point and click genre. He said maybe <laughs> yeah. semi-controversially. Sure. Like, you know, not, you know they rarely work unless you're digging through the puzzles to get to the next joke right um, yeah I, I agree with that and i've loved uh like stuff like the stanley parable and jazz punk which are i mean there aren't really there are sort of a puzzles in those games but they're, they're it's more vehicles for you know just hilarious jokes and just really great yeah. voice acting and stuff uh and i just finding them like that level of wit and stuff in games is is, is such a rarity still like it's, yeah it's remarkable for me. i think uh, maybe val's great accomplishment there was that their uh you know to me the humor uh particularly in portal but also in tf2 felt like my kind of humor and it was felt very geared to me but from the evidence i can see that it is incredibly broad it's just that you know um i've never hear from anyone who didn't find portal funny or mm. didn't um like there are people who don't get tf2 but they they may have um might be t too tied in with objections to like the type of multiplayer game it is or whatever but that there's a lot of humor in there that I would have said is niche, but um, it turns out isn't. And there are, I think there are other games that try and be funny. There are a lot of, these days in particular with like MOBAs and stuff, a lot of them have tried to be very personality driven and have kind of funny characters and a lot of them fall flat. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and it's, they may work really, really well for a certain group of people, but they don't work well for me. And mm -hmm. so they obviously haven't done what Valve did, which made something that was seemingly funny to everybody. <laughs> yeah, I think, well, I think it's very... Um... Not when I say sophisticated humor, a lot of the jokes are dumb, but like it often, well, I'll put it this way. It comes from funny writing first and foremost, like genuinely, I think independently funny comedy writing, which is not the case for say like a wacky character in a game, right? Like, and there's been degrees of this throughout games. So, cause I was having this conversation this weekend actually while I was away, um, with a, a friend who, who 
uh, is more of a League of Legends person than I am a Dota person. We were talking about the ways which both of those games, we mentioned MOBAs, do comedy. And Dota is very, very different because Dota is a lot of the same writers that have been doing different things at Valve in different contexts. So it tends to be quite wordy. Like the humor, there's a lot of jokes there, but it tends to be puns and like little allusions and some genuinely funny like asides and things. But it tends to be the, the humor comes from the script. Whereas I think Riot with League tend to lean very hard on like the kind of wacky character kind of side of it. Um, uh, and there are, cause there are definitely weaknesses, I think, in terms of accessibility to the, sort of pun approach including languages right like if you are intending your game to really work internationally then yeah. having having the humor of your game hinge off a a clever script is a is a is a you know it's not it's necessarily as easy to translate literally as as a, a wacky character who's wearing a big hat mm. um there's and- a really interesting quote um i think it's on pc gamer from robin walker um about uh why glados got added uh, to portal yeah. and basically they had portal um uh, i can't remember how many levels but almost all the levels in there and they've been playtested and people were getting through them and people liked the game but they also kept asking when the game was going to start um and by the end of it they felt like they'd just been through a long tutorial and uh valve's conclusion from this was that um uh, they needed some kind of pressure or you know game push back at all it was just you couldn't fail there's no threat um uh and so it wasn't that it was too easy. It was that because there was nothing pushing back, people saw it as a tutorial. Um, and so that's why they added GLaDOS and, uh, they were very limited in what she was going to do. Uh, you know, she doesn't really push back. She doesn't really threaten you in many situations. There are a couple, but, um, uh, she mostly gives the impression of pushing back and the impression of pressure and, uh, uh, literally threatens you with words rather than, um, actually threatening you. Um, and that's, uh, you know, it totally works. It completely, um, uh, solves the problem, but that is just the last solution I would have thought of. <laughs> like, well, from that feedback, I would be like, oh shit. Okay. We've made a really long tutorial. Now we need to go and make the game. Right. Like, it's going to be another couple of years, guys. And, um, we've got to make these really big, complicated levels and, uh, we're going to add baddies. Yeah. And yeah. a gun. I, I wouldn't underestimate the power of having a boss fight as a full stop on a game, <laughs> which is what you got, you get with GLaDOS. You get like an arc of, you get the sense you're eventually going to confront her and that, that, momentum gives you a sense that then an ending is coming up and it gives you an arc to the game the fact yeah that you're yeah it gives them the moment where you break out of the tra- training yeah, regimen as well like even yeah. though it's you know kind of just more levels after that point like mm. it does feel different yeah that's an important thing i think it's interesting because like that game invented like so many things that make it super accessible despite being kind of you know, you say the fact that it feels like one long tutorial, but I still think it's like one of the best tutorials for playing a first person game that has yeah, ever been yeah, made because it sure. teaches you to look at stuff and think spatially, which is the hardest things for people rather than just shooting. And the fact that it's a game with such a great kind of, um, lead, comedy lead, also a female lead voice. And, you know, obviously main character is Chell, but like she, she is a cypher. Gladys is, is the main character of the game really. Mm-hmm. Like meant that it was always the easiest game to reach to when like introducing somebody um who like didn't necessarily feel home in any other kind of first person game to first person games right like it's like i can't think of a better one even now than the first puzzle and the central mechanic is still subvert like i still haven't encountered a mechanic in a shooter or a 3d environment that subverts the idea of 3d space in the as effectively as the portal mm-hmm. which obviously came from no bacular drop um uh kim swift et al who they hired and then uh, got them to make it but that's just a spectacularly brilliant idea isn't it the idea of portals shoot one here shoot one there and you know ha- have fun i mean that's it's so good i think maybe it's worth sort of thinking about how like that orange box 
set, continue to trend of Valve setting expectations for more stuff like that, which was possibly hard. Like, because mm. you're right, no one's really come up with a better idea than the portal gun since the portal gun that's equivalent to the portal gun. Similarly, the gravity gun from Half-Life, which is like <laughs> most versions of that since are kind of like a different gravity gun with a different yeah. restriction. Yeah, it's like it's magnets or something. Mm. Like even the paint gun in Portal 2 is just like, uh, you know. I, I think the behavior changing gun stuff in uh, Jordan Thomas's last game was oh, had, yeah. had yeah. the potential to be that new thing, actually. Um, mm, the magic circle. A different form and perhaps, you know. Uh, tweaked a little differently that i think that has the potential that ai manipulation with guns and with weapons and that kind of stuff is a really interesting yeah, field you're right yeah there is there is potential there but, but like it didn't it wasn't as successful as portal right? it's not it's like it's not as discreet an idea mm. right like ultimately the thing that makes these ideas powerful is they're so simple yeah, it's just sure. the, yeah, like sure. you know yeah. no one's done them before i often think that like making indie games is the art of deciding what happens on right click <laughs> right. like you know left click is probably going to be interact or shoot or whatever but there's going to be something interesting on right click or there's going to be something interesting on the e key or there's going to be something interesting um with whatever the special action is and uh it's got to be uh both novel but also just immediate and i think like the magic circle definitely has the novelty thing and also the, the depth and the complexity and stuff and you can definitely mess around with it in all kinds of amazing ways hmm. but it doesn't have uh, compared to portal it doesn't have the same like you just click and something awesome happens yeah that's true yeah yeah i was just trying to apply that to heat sig tom but i guess it's like i guess it's, <laughs> it kind of ended up being the pause thing i think yeah I was saying it's kind of space bar right like it's yeah i suppose it is it's the moment you realize that you have all the time in the world to do this in a cool way <laughs> yeah hmm. sorry not to plug your game again god knows <laughs> I need that but i think there's some amazing stuff as well just by you know creating that infinite loop that everyone does where you know you shoot Oh yeah, the shoot the floor and then just fall mm. forever, uh, and just sort of see yourself rushing down through the same room infinitely. It's <laughs> just an amazing, uh, so many amazing memories of just messing around with that thing. Yeah, I suppose it's the it's the fun of real wanting to stop and play with something for a bit rather than just solve the problem with it and move mm. on. Like feeling that pull to experiment, independent of what the game is asking you to do. Which Portal feels like the Gravity Gun and Half Life felt that way, right? Like I I now want to pick things up and drop them on other things. Yeah. Um, like, um, why do we keep bringing it up? Zelda Breath of the Wild gets there with a few of its ideas, actually. Like, mm. as soon as you, you know, the stuff we banged on about before, like stuff of conducting electricity, the things you can do with the stasis power. Mm. Like, there's quite a lot of things in that game that are bordering on that in terms of yeah. like, oh, if I just experiment more, then I can do really crazy things. So um, on the TF2 blog, they did a sort of uh, anniversary post and... Um... Uh, that game has had, I think it was 682 updates <laughs> and um, apparently now has 100 maps or over 100 maps. Wow. Hmm. And uh, I, I was thinking, like, that sounded impossible to me because I, you know, last time I played it was a long time ago, yeah. but I feel like last time I played it, it had at least half of the updates that it's had to date. Um, like all of the class updates have been done, for example. Um, and I was thinking, I don't remember, like, clicking that drop down list box of the maps and ever seeing more than, like, 20 there. Hmm. Um but then I realized I didn't click that drop down list box since about three months after the game came out. Cause right. like the thing about playing around on your own server or setting up like a LAN game or something, it yeah. just kind of, you just don't deal with that stuff usually. Um, so I guess that game just has a shitload of maps, <laughs> most of which I probably haven't played. It's funny after 10 years, there was never another class. Yeah. I think that's, um, a sort of function of, um, uh, like, they the way they invested in it. Obviously, the, the updates they've done it represents a huge amount of work, but I think it wasn't, um, 
like a hundred people working on it for a year it's i don't know how many people but a smaller team working for a very long time right and at that scale you can make gameplay changes and you can make hundreds of them um but you maybe can't do to add a new class you need um uh you know a full human model and voice acting and a bunch of stuff that there's probably in production there's like a time and a place that you do it and after it's done it's much harder to go back and yeah and add to it maybe and also i mean a lot of those maps will have come through community competitions and things as well so Mm. some of the labor of creating those new spaces for the game will have been i think it's paid for but not dominant valve it's the most fun i've ever had in a multiplayer game outside of destiny (laughs) those are the only two i think both share some qualities in being accessible to people who aren't necessarily into shooters or yeah and both place less pressure on you to be excellent at twitch shooting if you don't want mm. to be and it, it, they're both forgiving in kind of similar ways actually yeah yeah and i suppose tf2 did ultimately get like 23 new characters when overwatch came out so <laughs> <That's true. laughs> so yeah no um what a great thing that was uh, it's I, I guess now it's the fact that it's been 10 years is like slightly bittersweet but only because of the legacy of subsequent things not coming out mm. right like like i don't you know i'm I, I kind of take valve's side i think when it comes to i don't think there's an obligation on them to follow up on any given series or you know whatever but i do understand why people want a conclusion to stuff but I also think that box is so extraordinary in terms of how many different ideas are in it and how much mm. how much skill it shows that it's kind of impossible. In defense of the people who've spent 10 years upset that there was never another Half-Life game, it's kind of... It is setting out an amazing stall, right? Like, if they'd put out one of those games every year for three years, people would have said, oh, Valve's had a good three years. <laughs> but they did one mega box with, like, everything they had mm. in it. In a way, yeah, sort of... Um... The thing I miss, um, obviously, I, I do want more Half Life. Um, but the other thing that maybe is not talked about as much is that uh, people wanted more Portal, and, and so did I. But I kind of almost want something more like what Portal was at the time, mm. which was a, a three-hour experiment that they had no idea whether it would uh, sell well or anything. But they just had a cool mechanic, and they just fleshed that out as much as it needed to be fleshed out, um, and just ended it, and then just released it, and. Um, it was successful. Maybe they don't know. I, I can imagine it's, I guess it's successes, which is a lot less than, you know, cause they did sell, they do sell those games individually um, and started doing so. I think, I can't remember if it was exactly the same time that it launched in the box, but pretty soon after you could buy them individually. Um, and I, I would guess portal success is probably less than the other two. Um, but uh, I would like them to do stuff like that because um, they must have loads of, cool ideas that would fit that kind of scope mm. of thing remember when they released alien the alien alien swarm swarm game yeah mm. that was um a sort of sign that they were, might start putting out those little games and like well the um yeah. thingy the, is it the lab <laughs> the lab is what i'm thinking of the five box yeah. set kind of has some some of that yeah in, right i think I, like the individual things within that um i think it's like slightly smaller scope than what i want and yeah. th- uh, the overall thing is um there's enough stuff in that package to be uh, to be well worth it but it's um obviously just a scattershot um bunch of, of little things mm. yeah i don't know if there's ideas in there that could necessarily have been expanded into a full game but there was certainly a desire to make and put out little experiences even if they were pretty disconnected from one another right yeah. like it does seem like um the sort of uh the fully formed 
games that they do finish and release tend to be teams that they hired who are already working on that or something like it and then they hire all the people doing it they finish it at valve and then afterwards they don't go on and make another thing of that size or right. scope they they sort of split it's up and join on to yeah. yeah and end up um uh working on games that uh where the work is sort of updating it and adding things to it mm. and evolving it over time you're mm. saying that it's not valve's fault it's everyone else's fault <laughs> <laughs> for producing fewer poachable teams that <laughs> uh, wasn't what i was thinking <laughs> that's what you said tom okay he said that now. And then talking about uh, wanting to poach Media Molecule forever. And uh, that would be amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As much as I love Media Molecule's games, that seems like a really good fit. Maybe what they should do is like hire these teams, let them make their thing, and then fire them all again. <laughs> and see what they make independently, and then hire them again if it's good. <laughs> yeah, this is, I mean, what fabulous business model that would be. That's would... hard to believe I'm not in charge of Valve. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the press from that would be extraordinary. Yeah. Imagine how well understood that top level plan would be. <laughs> And and that moment where it's like they have some sort of like like fucking lassie mentality to indie developers where so they have to let them back out into the woods at the end. <laughs> if you love them, let them go. Okay, exactly. <laughs> I feel like episode two was quite good as well. We've not really talked about that, but yep. so yeah. that's the game. most forgotten one of the, of the orange Yeah, it's amazing. Though, isn't it? it was... It's the one that sold the box yeah. and it's the least remarkable thing in the box. I really love it. And it, I, for me, that's the high point of Half-Life 2. Me too, yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, as we were talking about it and we were thinking about how memorable all these things are, um, I suddenly realised... There was like a scientist guy towards the end of that, and I cannot picture him or remember his name. <laughs> I remember he was a bit of a dick, but that's all I remember about him. Was he called Magnus? Because there's a yes. Magnus device, right? Is that the, the story? Yes, I think it was. It was the one. He was the one where I couldn't remember what the real name was from when um when Mark Laidlaw, Mike Laidlaw, Mark, Mark, definitely yes. Mark, <laughs> um, uh, released his sort of Mad Libs edited version of his Half-Life 3 idea or Half-Life Episode 2 mm. Half-Life Episode 3 idea um, that was the one that I couldn't remember what it was actually <laughs> representing but yes there was I, I also remember the ability to put a gnome in a spaceship yep <laughs> very familiar with that <laughs> went on that whole quest um, uh, also that was the for my money the first time they got a finale right a portal as well but um mm. Uh, half, neither Half-Life 2 nor Episode 1 had a, a really good finish, I didn't think. No. And uh, Episode 2 really did. It was like mm. a big open-ended um, defense of all these different buildings with striders coming in from all angles right. and like competing priorities, like people telling you to go and save this and then go and save that. And then uh, you're just driving around in a car with all these strider busters. You had loads of freedom. Um, and it wasn't uh, like a big boss. And they haven't really done that since Half-Life, it feels like. I mean, no. GLaDOS it technically is, but you're not really she no. isn't like a sort of um a hit point sponge in the level you're not putting um, out the bfg to blast her in the yeah 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 uh, which is not, a good thing I she's think. not yes. a big spider testicle no <laughs> their, their <laughs> decision to uh, avoid that approach having a boss fight that is a big bullet sponge is a uh, very uh, a good one and um the right approach but i think with half-life 2 they struggled to replace it it was like a big orb and you had to fire orbs into it <laughs> and then episode one it was just getting the people to the train right which was it was a decent kind of climax cool, wasn't it? yeah yeah but yeah. it wasn't um it feels like like the defining half-life boss moment is the um silo in half-life one right like it's the throwing grenades yeah, distracted the... by sound that's and then activating the engines to oh, kill I see, it sorry, yeah. like that's you know as a boss encounter because that's not health Sponge, that's a puzzle, right? And the best Half-Life yep. bosses are puzzles, not... And then, I mean, Half-Life 1 later gets the the baby and the testicle, which are both not good boss fights. But yeah, like, it, the first game did set a precedent for, like, boss encounters are these interesting yeah. monster puzzles. Um, 
the Half-Life, sorry, the episode two uh, encounter, the highlight of that for me was if you let a strider destroy the sawmill, somebody says, not the sawmill, there's nothing sacred. <laughs> <laughs> there's some fantastic enemies in episode two. Um, the three-legged tripod uh, kind hunters. of- Hunters. Hunters, I think they were called. Mm. They were a sinister- and amazing to yeah, fight. Yeah, they, really so, cool. they seem seem so smart and terrifying. And the, the way they introduce you to them so slowly, and you end up in this house, and they're kind of peeking through the windows, and then vanishing yeah. off. Fantastic. They, fantastic they fired like uh, I think they're called flechettes, and mm. they were like um, uh, little projectiles with like a spiral blue trail on them, and they di- they dig into a wall, then like a second later they explode. So they led to these great moments of like, oh shit, I've got to get out of this room. <laughs> yeah, just superb stuff. Like, and just amazing design, really. And other games have caught up, I think. Subsequently, like I'd argue, that I'm really excited about Wolfenstein, which is up very soon because I think Machine yeah, Games I'm caught up with them. Yeah. Um, in terms of encounter design and set pieces and things, so it's a very different games, but still. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, nothing in that box has aged badly. I think. Um, although I didn't really stick with it, um, I think Overwatch is like a decent um, successor to TF2. Like it's mm-hmm. not. Uh, at the time, I remember thinking, like, when I was really into it, I was thinking, like, if they, if this was TF3, if they just, Valve just released this as TF3, I'd be pretty happy with what I got. Um, now I kind of think, since I didn't stick with it, that's probably not true. <laughs> but, like, playing Tracer effectively for the first time actually felt like playing the Spy effectively for the first time in TF2, not in the sense that it was the same strategies, um, but in the sense of, like, oh, I've never played anything like this. This is generally mm. different to, yeah, I'm playing a whole new game. I here. wonder. Yeah, mm. that's an interesting question. Is like, what are the modern successors to each part of that box? Because mm. you can argue, yes, Overwatch is, is the successor of TF2, and you can either say that cynically in the sense that obviously it takes a lot of ideas from TF2, but you also it's you know they meaningfully developed on top of it. So, yeah, um, I would argue that essentially there are a few like Wolfenstein Machine Games are one of the studios flying the flag. Wolfenstein and, and Titanfall Two mm. are the successors for yeah. Half Life. Um, yeah, Titanfall Two at that that feeling of like each level being a showcase for something sure. yeah an, an idea used to do. well actually yeah the effect and cause level in titanfall 2 is one yeah. of the very few modern gravity gun moments i think in terms of what it <laughs> yeah, kind of fantastic. feels like yeah um i haven't played them but i hear the metro games are um often yeah seen as like the high point of single player i really like them days. um yeah. i like them i think they're not they're not as strong as um machine games but i think they're a bit older now as well like you know they're mm. before wolfenstein well yeah i mean yes like i hate to hate to say this but metro 2033 is at least 45 years eight ago years old <laughs> really? seven eight really? years old yeah uh, let's see okay they, they were kicking ass at the time then because yeah they, well, they, hang they, on. they're not far behind it might be six years old because mm. i no it's, it's definitely it seven 16 years in the future <laughs> yes what <laughs> um so yeah it's um i think it came out in 2010 so i think it's seven years ago Mm. Um, because I, one of the very first things I ever wrote about games that got like me work was about Metro, and that mm. was 2010 that I wrote that around the summer of 2010, so it has oh, to yeah. have come out around there. Yeah, so what's, might good. what's the closest we have to a modern portal? I would argue it's something like Edith Finch. Mm. I, I think, mm, not, in a, short games. not in a puzzle way, but I think short games way. Yeah, I, think, I think short think first person it, experiences that aren't necessarily about combat. Mm. Um, yeah. I know that people say that Thief is more of a touchstone for Gone Home in terms of like exploring a space and mm. not having combat as a primary mechanic. But I do think Portal created a precedent for short form first person games that were very character led. Yeah, um, I, I wonder if The Witness happens, if Portal doesn't happen and stuff like that, you know. <laughs> I mean, maybe yeah. so. I mean, Jonathan Blow just does what he wants. But, but <laughs> I mean, that, the precedent is there and the kind of the audience perception mm. of things has changed by what Portal was. You know, it's like, wow, you can have a fucking great game for 
that's three hours long and, and paper. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that, I that guess in like in the most literal terms, um, uh, maybe something like Talos Principle maps oh, yeah. pretty closely to Portal in mm. terms of like it's um, uh, puzzle and plot and um, mm. just format. Stanley Parable. I mean, yeah, yeah. Stanley Parable was now like four <laughs> years ago or something ridiculous, right? Yeah, so, Stanley, Stanley Parable is really close, actually. I'd say uh, the idea you just pay three three hours of jokes. And that's worth your, <laughs> worth your money as a game. Yep. That's, yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah. 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 Everything was a long time ago, though. That's the, that's the mm. problem, mm. really, here that we have. I can't believe Dishonored was five years ago. That's, that's <laughs> completely nuts to me. Mm. Uh, and yet, yeah, here we are in the year 2017. Mm. Makes a certain amount of sense to me because I reviewed it. So I know it's from my games journalist life. Right. <laughs> and that was a different life. Therefore, that should be a long time ago. <laughs> mm. That makes sense. We've been talking a lot so far on this podcast about boxes that are very good value. <laughs> but a lot of the, a lot of the discussion this week in video games land on the internet where the video games live has been about boxes that are not good value. Yes. So say internet and possibly correctly. Feel a, yeah, certainly. Um, but it does feel as though people have sort of only just noticed this all at once, even mm. though it's been happening for fucking ages, <laughs> years I think and years. We're talking about loot boxes, of yes. course. Um, the, 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 the practice of like random loot stuff. Pay your money, get a box, got items in it. Yeah. And every game has these now, basically. Mm. Every AAA game has them. And I think more, there's, I think there's two things. I think, I think two things have happened. One is that we're in AAA release o'clock, right? Every game is coming out at the same time. Yeah. And obviously a lot of studios and publishers had the, do we put loot boxes in our game chat around the same time? And so this year, more than any other year previous, there's just more of them, right? They're in everything. Um, I, I suspect games like everything Nintendo is doing and Wolfenstein will stand out for their absence rather mm. than the other way around. Um, but also I think people are now having to have the conversation about like, obviously if you wrote off every game that had loot chests in it, suddenly this Christmas's release schedule starts from a AAA point of view starts to look very, very thin. Mm. So the, the conversation becomes like, when is it okay? And when is it not okay? Right. That seems to be like, the internet will tell you that it's never ever okay well exactly right mm-hmm. and then there's a discussion about whether or not you know after the fact when a game is reviewed how do you assess like it has loot boxes but they're not that bad or something like that right yeah. like so you know this happened with destiny coming out on, on in the console release but it's actually on pc huge furore about the the presence of loot box equivalent in that game until people realize that you get them so quickly mm. that no one really that, you know, a couple of days after release, it just the, the controversy completely died down because they were pretty benign. Um, it's funny that benign is the word you used to, but like, yeah, likewise, the shadow of Mordor. <laughs> it's not Mordor. Middle Bad Earth. War. Are you talking about the, the Middle Earth one. TM franchise? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's. Uh, I feel like no human says the name of that game correctly first time. Yeah. Uh, Shadow. Possibly ever. <laughs> Shadow of War? Yeah, Middle Earth Shadow of War. Is yeah, you, but you pronounced the question mark then, Tom, and that's not in it. <laughs> oh, it's so confusing. It's uh, the Shadow series. The new one. Yeah. Like, what, what? I just want to know what the people on the team call it. They must call it Mordor 2, right? We all call it yeah. Mordor yeah. 2. Yeah, that would Additional be an excellent door. name for it. That would be a really good name for it. Um, yes, Shadow of Wardor. Wardor? Fuck. Um, Should have called it Fordor. Two door hatchback, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but that's got uh, loot boxes in it, and our reviewer for Peace Game, Randy Kelly, um, said it has no effect whatsoever on the game. You just completely ignore them, and they're just 
a thing on a menu somewhere that has no effect on the game mm. and in that context to what you know to what extent do you really like for those people who want to get into it it's there uh but you know surely it's in the interests of uh developers publishers to make these things actually more integral to the systems to make you actually to push you gently into yeah it's, it's a strange thing because yeah. people always worry about the slippery slope thing like yeah. it's it's fine now but what if also i think there's i think it might be a little bit unproven like there's there's the industry goes through these trends where they're all doing the same thing at the same time yeah. and then they all get away from it and i wonder if you know the first assumption is that well these things must be making money because everyone's doing it but it might just be that you know, the other way around, like everyone has an expectation that they'll make money. And maybe if this wave of AAA games don't make too much money from the loot boxes, then they'll get replaced by something else. I don't know. There's probably some stat on a slide in a GDC talk on the monetization track, like three years ago, where somebody had done loot boxes and they pointed to it and said, here's how much money we made. And everyone who attended that session went back to their teams and like, okay, we're doing fucking loot boxes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And three years later, we're getting those games. Um, two years like new Assassin's Creed has them as well, um, mm. but I think the previous Assassin's Creed had loot boxes, so that's not in, in their multiplayer modes. They did, yeah, they used to. Yeah. I think Unity did mm. in its or Syndicate in its anyway mode. Oh right, single okay. player. They it's it's been in the series for a long time in its multiplayer mode. I'm sure. Yeah, uh, it's, it's been in like it's been in games for a long, long time now. Like even in single player games and stuff, it's, it's interesting that it's come to a flashpoint now. And I wonder if there are particular instances of like egregious loot boxes, which apparently Battlefront Two might be. An yeah, example. I was going to get onto that because mm. I, I didn't play it myself, but the PC. Uh, there was recently a PC beta test of, of Star Wars Battlefront 2. I played the, I say this, I was only eight at the time, but I must have lifted now. I played the alpha like ages ago, but and I didn't have anything in it. But it seems like, um, and I'm, so I'm going off stuff I've read, so forgive me if I get anything wrong, but it seems like, um, loot boxes are the progression mechanic for that game. Right. So unlocking new characters and upgrades for characters, which can be quite substantial, is all done through randomized loot boxes. And so you might get loads of them all the time, but, that still means that your progress is sort of randomly distributed and, you know, people, people found it very upsetting basically. Right. And I think it put a lot of people off the game because, um, it looked like the sort of stat upgrades. Cause you get like upgrade cards for the different characters that allow them to do different things like new abilities. And the difference between like the common and rare vision version of a given upgrade would be like a hundred percent damage difference. So it does a hundred damage if you have the common Yay. version and 200 damage if you have the rare version. Right. Um, and if that doesn't push people towards yeah. spending money on the boxes, I don't know what does. And also, um, random progression is mm. frustrating to people as well. Like if you only like playing this character and you only get upgrades to something else, I don't, I don't want to say that's how the game's going to be at launch because, you know, maybe I'll listen to this backlash, but it, that's that the, the discomfort about that seemed to, crest above the discomfort of other loot boxes yeah i think often the the anger at loot boxes is sort of abstract it's like we know this is probably fine but it's the presence of it makes us lose confidence in the game because what if it changes whereas the battlefront 2 thing seems like the first time where it's actually no this is going to spoil the experience of playing mm -hmm. this game which is a shame but i mean to be honest it's not like ea don't have precedent for making really really oh, sure. weird decisions about their multiplayer shooters it's, that's what killed titanfall right like mm. like locking stuff off making stuff really expensive like it seems like that company leans quite hard on having a big super 
super expensive service FPS every year. They Last also, year it was Battlefront, yeah, Battlefield. But also with EA, look at FIFA. Ultimate Team is the ultimate example of this type of business model, which is mm. which really sucks people in and makes enormous amounts of money. And people, like the audience accepts it on a genre-by-genre genre basis. So in a free-to-play shooter, a loot box element is might be expected. In a free-to-play MOBA, you know, cosmetic loot boxes or whatever might be expected. In a single-player RPG like Shadow of Mordor, like that audience just does not want that shit in their game. <laughs> they, no. they they want because like a lot of the integrity of the game is based on the progression systems that you encounter as you level up, and that's part of the pleasure of the game and the idea that you can circumvent it cheaply by paying for loot boxes and not even knowing that you're getting what you think you're going to get is obviously yeah. distressing to people. It's interesting with um, Shadow of War. It's um, you buy the boxes with the in-game currency, and then you can buy the currency. Right? Is that correct? From what I read about it, that sounds like that's the case. Something um, like that. It's either that or there's a separate... Because I think Andy Kelly said that... Um, there, actually, no, sorry. I might be getting mixed up with... Uh, someone on RPS also wrote about this, but had a very similar opinion, which is like, don't worry about it. You don't need to buy them at all. I yeah. didn't. Um, and they were saying that um, in the... Uh, basically, that they had just had so much currency from just playing the game that they, the idea of buying any more would be... Uh, ridiculous maybe i suppose uh it's possible that you can buy the loot boxes for money rather than buying the currency for money but since you can buy loot boxes with both it's essentially the same thing um and so you just get so much of the in-game currency that you don't need to buy the other currency but spending the in-game currency to get loot boxes is also weird <laughs> yeah um yeah it, it, the whole thing is strange because like rpgs are traditionally about the feeling of like i remember where i was when i got this cool sword mm. and i was in a menu is not like i think maybe i got it wrong actually maybe the way it works is that you buy loot boxes for real money and within the loot boxes you can sometimes get currency and uh and also all the things that you can buy with currency um right and this person's point was you don't need to buy the boxes because you get enough currency that you can buy all the things yeah right yeah it's a really strange one like I I hope it goes away. But I think a lot about I've been thinking about this recently because um there's been a good there was a good article in the Guardian I read today, but I don't know how it's been long it's been up about uh people in about uh people in Silicon Valley uh who usually like mid level engineers and designers at Google and Facebook, etc., who have started to move away from the same platforms that they help build because they've realized kind of what a toxic att- effect it has on your attention. Mm-hmm. And the way that companies through it's in, in it essentially good intentions when i say good intentions i mean a relatively honest desire to do better by their advertisers ended up creating these kind of addictive loops that actually have quite a debilitating effect on initially people's attention spans then their happiness and then three third the democracies they participate in (laughs) until essentially point four is the collapse of human civilization as far as anyone can tell and um thanks loop policies yeah well (laughs) well so this is an interesting thing because um i i caused a whole bunch of different ideas to clash together in my head at the same time because obviously this this uh, debate about loot boxes was happening on twitter at the time its own form of social mm. feedback loot box um at the same time as this was happening i was in vegas wondering why <laughs> people would spend their entire day sat at one cent slot machines pulling a lever all day for no material benefit apart from the fact that humans just really like to like plug into a machine and get a thing back or not as people like to gamble basically mm. And um, there's an interesting part of the article, which I'll link in the show notes, about the invention of drag to refresh. Um, so, you know, when you drag down on Twitter oh, and yeah. it refreshes, and almost every app works that way now. Mm. Um, the guy who invented that, it was just because his app, which I think was a twi- something that used the Twitter API, 
he couldn't figure out how to elegantly fit a refresh button onto the screen. So he invented this drag down until it clicks and then it refreshes thing. But that, and then that his company got bought by Twitter. Twitter incorporated it into the main app. Then it ended up in everything because it's a really compulsive action. And it's that feeling of like, Oh, I'll just crack open another batch of tweets. And there's no (laughs) technological reason why it needs to work that way. There's nothing stopping them with modern data and processing power on smartphones, just seamlessly updating the feed and scrolling you to the top. And yet you're always sort of fiddling with it. You're always interacting with it like a, like a stress ball gives you stress and like, and it, and it, you know, you're constantly kind of tweaking and like, and that I think is very similar to the way that often loot boxes function in games when they tie into one other compulsive loop, which is a notification system. Like you have three unopened boxes rather than simply you've received some stuff. It's another process that you have to detach from the game and go into and you're spending more time sort of interacting with it. You know, um, a game we've been playing, which we'll talk about in a minute, uh, does this where opening the box isn't simply like pressing a button. It's like holding a button for a few seconds while the box kind of vibrates and yeah, shakes yeah. and then cracks like a egg of money that <laughs> like, um, and then sort of, and then you get the, you get to watch the animation as the, you know, even games like Lawbreakers do this, where you get to watch the the stuff appear one by one, like it's beaming in from space. Yeah, Overwatch and, does a lot of fanfare with this as well. Yeah, and there's no, no, no reason at all why it couldn't be. You've leveled up, you've received these three items, right? Like, at all. But what it is, is, you know, three menus later, an explosive animation later, and then you get, like, the new item, like, the notification icon over like a character's portrait. So, you know, you've unlocked like a McCree emblem, but you've got to go digging into a menu and browse all the other things you don't own in order to make it unread because <laughs> of your compulsion, my yeah. compulsion to make things un make things red. Mm. Cause I don't want any messages on red icons and anything ever. And there's some, whether we got there through a, a, a run of innocuous design decisions that were all made for usability reasons, or we got there because of grand malice, <laughs> we've ended up in this place where there is a kind of common language of just attention keeping, which I think loot boxes are a kind of important part of. But that stems from the most, you know, like, you know, what I would argue is the most blatant, which are, uh, that's a one-armed bandit machine in Vegas hmm. through to Twitter, Facebook, loot boxes and so on it's not sufficient to boot up a piece of software have an experience with it and close it and do something else there's got to be something that holds you in the menus a little bit longer mm-hmm. and keeps you there and then hopefully feeds you back in and make sure that it may, remains the focus of your attention this actually ties in quite neatly to a thing i played this week which is um universal paper clips right yeah <laughs> i've seen people talk about that but i haven't played it so this is a game from um frank lance who is i know him as a sort of game design academic um uh, I think he teaches at NYU. Um, and Trivia is the brother of James Lance, who works at Clay and was the lead designer on um, Invisible Ink. Huh, that's um, talented. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh, no, wait, I think he's his dad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it's an unusual um, thing. I was trying to think if there was any other father-son des- game design <laughs> families. Um, so Frank is James's dad, uh, right. as I understand it. Anyway, it's a clicker slash idle game. I don't know. Are those two different genres? I imagine, well, they seem implicitly different, right? Yeah. Clicking in idle is different. But they, uh, it's in the vein of, um, uh, candy box and cookie clicker. Mm. <laughs> uh, and I'm using podcast voice because it's the first of these games that I've played for any length of time. Mm. Um, uh, and it looks a lot like the others, which is, it's a very basic HTML page. Um, and you are making paper clips. There's a button that says make paper clip on it. And you can click that to make a paper clip, but you don't 
need to more than a couple of times. Um, I can't remember exactly uh, what the first few steps are, but pretty soon you can buy an auto clipper and that makes paper makes one paper clip a second. And you can adjust the price of those paper clips and they will sell at a rate proportional to that price. And uh, you need to set up, um, uh, you need to purchase bundles of wire and then you can buy upgrades to get a better price on that wire and buy upgrades to produce, uh, increase the efficiency of your auto clippers. And then you can also buy auto clippers. So you, um, you make a uh, hundred paper clips and you sell them for three cents each. And then you spend, um, that three dollars, <laughs> um, on a new auto clipper, which then makes them faster. And the price of all these things that improve your efficiency goes up. Uh, but because they're improving your efficiency, your income, uh, not only your, your total amount of, um, paper clips goes up, but also everything else, um, your rate of, of getting them. Um, and, uh, it's an exponential game. It's a game where your rate of improvement is always going up, um, to an absurd degree. It is, you're, you're an AI in this and you've been tasked with making as many paper clips as, as possible. And this is a sort of famous thought experiment, um, to warn of the dangers of AI. Like, uh, one of the things people trot out to, to say why it's dangerous to give AI a lot of autonomy is, well, if you, if, even if you get, gave it something really innocuous to do, like just make some paper clips, make as, make as many paper clips as you can. And then you, uh, make a sufficiently intelligent AI and you give it autonomy to go about that however it wants. Uh, one of its steps might be to wipe out the human race <laughs> because the they could the, get in the way of it making more paperclips. It's the opposite of the, if you want to make an apple pie from scratch, you must first invent the universe thing <laughs> is if you want to make a paperclip, you will eventually destroy the universe. Yeah. And so this game very much plays on that um, in, in, in kind of a fun way in that you are, um, you are the AI. And so you like, you are making all the optimization decisions. These games, uh, certainly in this case, and I believe in, in all cases um, work because uh, it is fun to make a process more efficient and it's satisfying to see the number. It's the ultimate seeing the numbers go up game. Like the number goes up in a way <laughs> I have never seen before. <laughs> I now know what a quarter decillion is <laughs> because of this game. Um, and that's how many paper clips I made. Super um, number wang turbo arcade edition. It, it works though, doesn't it? It's the numbers go up. The rate at which the numbers are going up goes up. The rate at which the rate goes up goes up. And all, all these things are just massing and massing and massing. And it feels like, um, it's actually weirdly exhilarating. That's mm. a strange word to use about a game that's just a blank, uh, sort of plain black and white HTML page. Uh, but the rate is so, um, uh, you know, when you make a big efficiency jump, like up, there's one that makes all of your, auto clippers a hundred so 10 times more efficient or something um and so your production suddenly goes boom and uh it feels ridiculous you know in a couple of seconds you've made as many paper clips as you've made in your whole uh, game until that point um and it never stops uh getting more and more ridiculous uh and in many ways that is first of all it's really addictive and i haven't got addicted to these before i think because the other ones required you to do a lot of clicking before it would sort of automate and this one gets to the automation very, very quickly. You don't need to hammer the mouse button. Um, and so I got into it and got addicted to it. And it did, I think it like technically it's sort of in the genre of idle games, but it actually didn't spend any time idling really. I was just, actually, there's always something for you to be doing pretty much for most of it. There was a couple of bits towards the later stages where it didn't seem like I had a good way of making it more efficient. So I just left it for a while um, until I could afford the next upgrade or whatever. Um, but uh it basically consumed my whole day <laughs> and at the end of it uh i really didn't feel good <laughs> i was really in a bad mood like 
for one thing, uh, I kind of got stuck at one point and it seemed like I wouldn't be able to progress. And then eventually I did figure out how to progress, but then it kind of, um, uh, and it scaled up in, a, in an impressive and cool way. Um, but then shortly after that, it kind of hung. And even before that, what I don't know is like, if there, I think there, you can complete it. I've heard of people completing it, although it, it's way longer than I realized. Um, what I don't know is if I had completed it satisfactorily, would that have sort of undone all of the negative feelings that I now have? Um, I don't think so. I feel like even if it had, had a satisfactory ending, there were loads of points that I thought it was going to end. And uh, uh, if it had ended there, that, that particular moment would have been nice. But then I think I still would have had the same feeling of like, God, I just wasted the whole day. <laughs> like, right. really wasted. Not like playing video games all day usually is the good kind of waste where you look back at it and think, well, that was indulgent, but I had a lot of fun. Hmm. And just look back at it and think... Well, I was really compelled to do that. <laughs> I couldn't say I enjoyed it. Mm, top five fugue states, 2017. <laughs> yeah. And so um, from what I understand from people who played a bunch of these, this is one of the best. This is like a really uh, inventive and, and clever and cool one. For but, me, it was the most soul-destroying game experience. <laughs> I was going to say, best is an interesting one. The kids on r slash on Wii fucking love it. <laughs> Uh, it's, that's horrifying. Uh, it's fascinating, you know, as a game designer, it's obviously really interesting to see these things work because it's all dark patterns it's all the the dirty tactics you can use to to make someone want to play your thing mm. uh i wouldn't say, there is there there is invention and humor and wit in it uh definitely um but it almost feels like one of those um i mean in bogus cow clicker was mm. a, a parody of the genre it's supposed to show how stupid they were then it got really popular yeah. <laughs> and that kind of tells you what, what the genre is and i'm sure frank lance I don't, actually, I shouldn't speak for him. I don't know what his feelings are on it, but it, it feels like, again, it's somewhat parodying the thing. Like the whole point is that you're an AI and it's demonstrating this terrible, terrible circumstance in which the mm. AI gets out of control and makes terrible sacrifices to make more paperclips. Um, and the fact that you are uh, controlling this is kind of a joke. Um, but yeah, I was surprised by just how much it really ruined my mood and really made me feel bad about the time I spent. Huh. Yeah, that is interesting. So look forward to that in all of your games. <laughs> Box form. Yeah, well, you know. Well, we won't have to deal with it too long because eventually a paperclip-making AI is going to destroy us all. So <laughs> there is that. What have you been playing, Tom S? Uh, I played the first few hours of Shadow of War. <laughs> Middle Earth TM. Middle Shadow Earth. <laughs> of War. Uh, yes, and I really enjoyed the first game, even though I didn't finish it because... I didn't finish it either. Its loop just got stale after. I think I did finish it. (laughs) (laughs) Is it rare I get to say that? I got up to the second map, and we were talking a few podcasts ago about that bit where you get to the first city in RPG. Big town. Yeah, (laughs) and just go fuck it. And that's what happened to me with Shadow of Mordor, the first game. Uh, But the second game, so I've just started playing it, and I'm really excited about the combat, because it's I, I unashamedly love chopping up orcs in that in those games so i just mm. love the animations the kind of arkham style combat the finishers everything all of that stuff really satisfying i just wish the rest of the game around didn't exist <laughs> uh and i'm still in the sort of tutorial bit it's all pointing me around the first map i'm in um like a city in gondor and it looks quite kind of cool but i'm going up towers and picking out map points then i'm going down to finish off bunches of orcs then i've got to go down to and the interminable cutscenes of this fucking mm. useless empty avatar that you're playing as who just has a, a really strange face like yeah. such a strange face he has that like is is, is not strange handsome. yet boring yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's it, it's like all the angles is i see the kind of male model you're going for but at the same time it's, it's not it's like human. some sort of uncanny valley of male 
protagonist men, right? It's like, very strange. It's like a load of their faces have been glued together in some sort of mask form, and then a, a haircut has been put on top of it. There's something really <laughs> weird about his face. It's really hard to describe. His eyes yeah. are too small. His his, his, <laughs> his cheekbones are too big. It's just very, it's very odd. It's just very odd. And I had loads of fun in the first game because um, it, it looked like very generic, but it looked normal. You didn't fill me with a sense of existential dread <laughs> to them, mm. unlike in the second game um, and uh, there's a great photo mode so I used to um, pause and pan around and used to make the most amazing faces yeah I've got some <laughs> fond memories of the grimaces he pulls <laughs> in the mid stab <laughs> uh, and th- there was loads of fun to be had with the violence in that game and uh, I, w- I worry that the second one is uh, I don't know the first game I don't know, jump the shark's the wrong phrase, isn't it? Just, well, let's say just pissed on Tolkien's grave. This <laughs> <laughs> one does so from a much greater height. Uh, he just hopped over the shark on the way to Tolkien's grave. Like, like, um. And full on dumped on it. Yeah. Uh, like an arrested development, just when, skipping over it. Uh, when you say you want the combat and, and nothing else surrounding it, uh, does that, where does the nemesis system fall into this? Oh, actually, I do like the nemesis system. Yeah, that's a, a good caveat, actually. Um, I I really like the orcs. They're really characterful and cool. And also, sorry, just quickly, yeah. what is the Nemesis system? <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, so I think I know. Uh, yeah, A, we should explain it to the readers, but also we've I've talked about it loads and so are other people and we all agree a Nemesis system is amazing. And sometimes I discover we're talking about totally different things because <laughs> there's actually lots of different bits to it. Yeah, there are. And it's been expanded a lot for the second game, I think. I'm still getting into the systems. But essentially, uh, the Nemesis system is um, a series of hero orcs that form a hierarchy in the zone you're in and you can have varying relationships with those orcs and obviously like by default they hate you and um you can interrogate underlings to gain intel on their strengths and weaknesses and then go after them and assassinate them and stuff but later on you can also convert them to your cause and then tell them to do stuff so the nemesis system is about nemesises and also nemesises <laughs> nemesis 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 and also um uh, pals, pals. <laughs> notices of friends yeah. that you point uh, that, that's pretty much i think that encompasses the system enemies yeah. and frenemies and sometimes they can interfere with your shit as well like so if you form a, a, like a super nemesis like a guy who super hates you in that that cabal they can ambush you and they can you know assault you mid-mission as you're trying to do something else that kind of thing yeah hmm. that's, that's a good overview that's pretty much what i would say uh for me like the the thing i enjoyed about it was well like like for me it was um randomly generated bosses with weaknesses and strengths and then i would get intel on those and having that secret information about i know if i do this to you you'll die and if i i shouldn't try and do this and this to you because you're immune to that um and like uh, that was sort of the main thing for the nemesis system for me and then i talked to someone else who was like um literally talking about the fact that if one of those orcs kills you uh when you respawn they are your nemesis <laughs> and it will say that and they'll remember Double you and have a, have a funny line about it which i don't really care about that was um, I, that was what i would have defined the nemesis system right. as um the reactiveness to everything that happens and then there's the uh uh there is a lot to it because there's stuff like um these captains are all fighting each other and they'll have special events going on where like this one has decided to raid this one's feast and um uh piss on his chips and if he successfully pisses on the chips he will be <laughs> upgraded in rank uh <laughs> but if he fails to piss on the chips he'll be killed <laughs> um and that's going on ambiently anyway but then also once you control them um you can send yours to sort of fuck with um to piss on the various chips of the other orcs <laughs> um dynamically soggy buffet <laughs> um and so I, 
Uh, I've been playing. <laughs> I've been playing Shadow of War. I've got, uh, I think, about four to six hours in, um, oh, okay. and I was getting pretty annoyed with it because uh, there is like a a mission that is pure tutorial, and then after that, you are in a led through a bunch of plot missions which are basically teaching you here's how the game works and it's like 99% the same as last time hmm. and it's like four hours of these missions just telling you here's how that system you already remember works here's how these guys work here's how all the button is for this um, and each one is like a 45 minute mission with five cutscenes which luckily you can skip um, the cutscenes not the mission um, and I was getting really annoyed with that because I just kept expecting it to open up and like you're in a cave as well which is just it's not that it's a like one long linear level or anything but just the fact that it's enclosed makes you feel like you're not in the world yet like i want to get out of this mm. i want to get out into the real game and i was getting really impatient with that and um i discovered through twitter that i wasn't even close to getting out of that thing um and so and i also failed a mission um and so i decided to just like stop doing the plot stuff and just kind of mess around in this cave thing because it is basically an open world it's um uh it has sort of fortresses and and captains and stuff and the more i played around with it the more i realized like oh basically the whole game is here like not all of it the only thing it's missing is you can't turn captains to your side so you get to play with that side of it but you can totally get intel on captains dynamically choose um which ones you're going to assassinate um level up as much as you like and get all these um abilities that will let you prey on their weaknesses better um and i had died on a plot mission where the uh plot mission is to kill the war chief and war chiefs have kind of uh i'm not sure if they technically are bodyguards um it was confusing because basically i failed because the war chief showed up and there was literally five captains with him mm. and i didn't know anything about any of them so there's some of them i'd like try and set light to them and like no this one's immune to fire and i try and shoot them with the arrow no it's immune to arrows uh with five of them like you know anything you try is going to fail on like three of those imagine that's how the real secret service worked like, get down <laughs> mr president i'm the bullet invulnerable guy <laughs> i'm immune to guns <laughs> <laughs> and you'd have like somewhere like they have a stage less than immunity where like they're not immune to that thing but it enrages them and when they're enraged they're <laughs> not vulnerable so like i'm not immune to bullets mr president but i am I get very angry if i get shot <laughs> so, put me i'll go second <laughs> I'm not an ideal first choice. <laughs> um, Five captains, one war chief. Yes, and they killed me, and I thought, well, the problem with that was I didn't know who any of those fuckers were, and also, I, you know, maybe I can kill some of them before they get there. Strangely, on the, the sort of the army map, um, where you see everyone's relationships and, and uh, the intel you do have, uh, I could see this war chief, but there were no connections from him going to any other captains. One of the other war chiefs had lines going to, to people to show their his bodyguards. So there's no indication of like, why were those people defending him? Can I stop them? Who are they? And so I just, uh, for every, there's like 20 captains on this, on this screen and they're all dark. You don't know what any of them, uh, any of their properties are. And to get information on one of them, you need to find a worm who's like an informant or like a, an unwilling informant, uh, who, um, sort of uh do some elf magic too to steal his his knowledge um and then blow up his head uh and that gets you information on one of those captains and i just systematically hunted down all of those intel guys until i had information on every single captain in the whole place <laughs> um and then i also tried wiping them out which didn't really work i thought i could just actually wipe them out but after i killed like five the first two had been replaced by new guys now and then mm. i didn't have intel on them so that ended up being um uh, treading water 
but anyway, I ended up sort of without really meaning to accidentally killing one of the other war chiefs, and all of like four captains showed up when I attacked him, and I took out all of them. Um, uh, and I was playing Shadow of Mordor. I was like having fun, and it was cool. Uh, and then eventually. Uh, I went back to the plot mission and it was uh, way easier because I just uh, I knew the weaknesses of these guys, but also I was just way better at the game and also I had leveled up a bunch. Um, and now I'm I am out in the open world. I'm not in a muddy area, which is fantastic. Uh, yeah. There's grass, there's trees, um, mm. which is really nice. Um, and I've just now got the ability to turn captains to my side, so I'm just starting to get into the um, uh, what I feel is the meat of it. Um, they have done more with this. You can, like, once you get captains on your side, you can make assault teams and then use those to send them after a fortress. So you're sort of building a super team of your favorite guys, which sounds very promising. I haven't got into that yet. Orcscom. <laughs> very good. <laughs> um, what I have got into is um, uh, I was just let out into this new grassy area, and so I didn't know any of the captains anymore. Um, and... Uh, my objective actually was just to find one and turn to my side. I did that. Um, and then I was just going to go around and just basically sort of kill or um, convert uh, captains as I saw fit. And I'd started going after one who sounded... Oh, yeah, I was planning to convert him to my side, actually, because the first guy I, I, I flipped was ranged. And I thought it'd be cool to actually to have a whole team of ranged guys because in a big fight, uh, they can sort of... A, attack all the same target or you know they can help uh more efficiently than melee guys who maybe can't all get to the the right place um and i've been working my way towards this guy i've marked him on my map and was trekking across and i got almost all the way there and um ran into a different captain and this captain was a melee guy and one of his traits was blood brother and when i highlighted that it turned out he was the blood brother of the one i was hunting and uh i didn't know anything about him so i kind of i just ran away from the fight um and then I suddenly had a thought of, like, there's a restriction where you can't turn captains if they're higher level than you. So I thought, shit, I need to actually check the level of the guy I'm hunting to see if he is of a level I can turn. And he's, like, five levels above me, <laughs> um, which means I'm not going to be able to turn him when I find him. I have to either kill him or um, uh, you can shame them to reduce their level, but it would only be down by one. <laughs> I'll just... I'll... How do you shame them? I haven't tried it yet. Um, I'm hoping he just kind of like does a little dance around Boo! <laughs> just you points yell. at them and say, lol. Look, uh. Like the old lady in Princess Bride. Just, you know, <laughs> like, just pretend to be lots of different orcs. Like, I hate you! <laughs> um, but the his blood brother, the one I'd run into, actually was my level. And so I thought, oh, I'll turn his blood brother instead then. Uh, and then I thought, oh, and I could turn his blood brother and then... Um, uh, like use him to attack the higher level guy because hmm. we're going to just like kill that guy so take all the help i can get um this is a cruel safe proper <laughs> yeah so it's actually an objective uh after you flip the captain that you've been told to fl- uh, you're just told to flip any old captain um and I- <laughs> just flip a captain just do it just do it don't worry about it flip a captain, any captain. Don't, don't show it to me don't show it to me yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> So I, I flip this guy, and then your objective is send this guy after another captain to kill him. Right. And I thought, great, I'll send him to kill the guy who who brother. I was going to flip, but now I can't flip. Flip the captain, cap the captain. Just do it. <laughs> um, <laughs> and what happened next was was almost like a really cool emergent thing, but ended up being a bit of a mess. <laughs> um, because, so a video game then. Yeah. So uh took the blood brother with me to go hunt uh, the higher level dude, and... uh 
we came across a uh caragor which is like a sort of dog you can ride uh and i wanted to ride it so i beat it up a bit which is how you do things in shadow of mordor um once it's beat shadow it up of, enough. you mean middle of tm shadow of War. <laughs> mordor 2 uh you beat it up enough and then uh it gets weak and then you can flip it to your side and <laughs> that's how everything works just flip don't question dog. it <laughs> Flip a dog horse, flip a cap then. <laughs> if you flip it on the road, does it explode? If, uh, <laughs> yeah. if it's upside down for too Only long. If there's a fuel leak. You have to get out and hold A to very slowly rotate the caragol back around the right. <laughs> um, and in the process of swiping my sword of it, my sword clipped the blood brother, um, which is not a big deal. You can attack your, your um, flipped captains a bit without them uh, getting angry with you. Um, but as soon as I hit him, the higher level dude came out of nowhere in a cutscene to say, Ah, oh, you think you can hurt my blood brother? Um, uh, I'm always here watching his back. And it's like, well, this is weird because he's on my side, not your side. You could say it was pretty awkward. <laughs> okay, keep him coming. <laughs> Thanks. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> um, so he showed up to defend it, which was like, okay, this, is, this situation's got really complicated, um, but kind of cool and it he because he shows up and he's hostile the blood brother attacks him because he's on my side like i have i haven't angered him um so like uh the crossbow guy has shown up to defend his blood brother his blood brother now then attacks him and did he uh, show up again to defend his other blood brother himself well <laughs> <laughs> what happened was i saw them fighting and i thought okay i'll help out the, the dude who's on my side and shot um the archer guy and as soon as i did that i got a cutscene from the guy from the blood brother who was on my side uh saying betrayal and he says oh you think you can the thing that didn't work was he said <laughs> you think you can kill my blood brother and uh and get away with it well he was my only blood brother and he was my favorite blood brother and and, and basically now i'm not charmed uh, <laughs> i'm much less charmed by you now <laughs> uh, which is weird because i but- hadn't killed him i'd only slightly hurt him and also he was in the process of killing him himself <laughs> um and uh so that went bad they were both against me then and i ran away and then immediately ran into a third captain who was (laughs) like enormous um and had to resolve that then eventually i came back and i just killed the guy i was going to kill anyway the high level archer guy um and when i did that the previously charmed blood brother (laughs) came back and was like oh you killed my blood brother i can't believe you killed my brother now i'm gonna kill you for killing the blood brother um and uh i had to kill him (laughs) (laughs) so that's how that game works i guess (laughs) it was fucking complicated it's like someone trying to explain like a particular house party gone horribly awry (laughs) like well then this person came over and you know they don't get on and it was just it was oh god that's yeah i'm glad it's still not really fully working (laughs) yeah (laughs) so a thing i heard that put me off the game quite a lot is that once you have the power to flip a captain, as you will, there is no reason to ever not flip a captain. Yeah. And so, like I say, if they're higher level than you, you can't flip them. So that's a reason to, I guess, kill them. Um, or you can just wait till you're higher level. Mm. Yeah, that sort of thing concerns me whenever you have these kind of interesting kind of um, sort of emergent systems or systems that support emergent situations. But there is a sort of best way that drains the sort of drains the air out of the room a bit. Like, I feel that way about, like, hacking and persuasion in a lot of RPGs or or Deus Ex or something, where it's kind of, like, always better to have that thing than not, Mm. right? Like, um, if you have the choice 
ideally in a Deus Ex game, you will hack and lockpick your way through everything, never be seen, and get maximum rewards and maximum options to get the best ending. Um, you know, we've talked in lots of different contexts about games that punish you for killing people. And this feels like a weird roundabout way to punish you for killing. When every orc is a potential friend, <laughs> um, it seems like, I don't know, that maybe feels like the weakness of a revamped nemesis system that places a focus on forming orc squads. Hmm. I'm going to kill them all. <laughs> I'd chop all their heads off. Yeah, mm. so I really like, like I say, the, the thing of finding out someone's weakness and then mm. going after it. I love that. And I've really focused on that in my upgrades. When I pick what to upgrade with for my character, it's always like, oh, this one gets me some poison damage. Right now I don't have any poison damage. So if someone's scared of poison, or some of them are just insta-killed by certain damage types. So it's like, if you can get any poison on him whatsoever, he's immediately dead. Um, and so I'm really interested in that. And obviously if I was going to like flip that captain... Um, then insta-killing him is not <laughs> conducive to that. Um, there is, you still get to engage with that system a bit if you're going to flip everybody because there's now uh, tiers of weakness. And so there's insta-kill, there's, uh, it can terrify them into running away hmm. or it can uh, daze, daze them. them. Yeah. And da- if they're dazed, I think that's when you can, maybe not right away, maybe you have to hurt them as well. But if they're dazed, they're in a state that you can flip them potentially. Right. Um, Flippable if poisoned. Yep. Is <laughs> uh, is there a limit on how many people you can flip? I don't think so. Hmm. That would be one way of solving that problem, right? If you had to like pick, you know, if you can only yeah. sustain, and maybe that would yeah. be upgradable, but you can only sustain five flipped orcs at a time yeah. or ten. <laughs> when... I'm not a superhuman. I can't have more than ten flipped orcs at once. Yeah, exactly. Like, no, you know. Italian and the five flips. <laughs> into the scene. Yeah, well, Italian you know. The flip captain. Keller Brimbor's there in your brain yeah. giving you that orc magic, but you can't, you know, he's only, you can only Keller Brimb so many people (laughs) (laughs) I've killer brimmed all I can killer brim (laughs) he's uh, he's still really annoying as well the angry elf that lives inside you (laughs) he's got a fucking weird special attack now where like it's a sort of rage frenzy thing and you go run off and like kill people but you do it like in melee range but with your bow like Mm. I couldn't even tell what was happening the animation's really unclear and he sort of dashes to people and then you hit attack and they die but then I was doing it and uh to a captain who was immune to ranged and i was like doing this point blank range attack rage attack and it was saying oh he's immune to ranged I'm like oh, is it ranged i guess oh, i guess he's holding his bow in some way i don't know what he's doing with the bow but i guess maybe he's just shooting them all point blank maybe i don't know why he needs thing. to like dash that is to the legolas thing right yeah, it's yeah. like poking people in the eyes with arrows and things right like bow foo which is also dumb mm. <laughs> elves are dumb elves are dumb there's one inside you in Middle Earth, Tim. <laughs> shadow of war yep hmm has that been your take on it so far, Tom? Appreciate that. Uh, it's early days. I think um, the combat system in its very early stages very much feels like one of those deals where they develop the full combat system and make it really fun. And then in order to create a leveling system, they cut out all the fun yeah. bits and just make it really, really fucking basic to start with. And this is like a perennial problem with like uh, with combat systems in RPGs mm. uh, where they feel like you can, you can only hit things to start with and that's just not good enough to be fun. Uh, you need all the cool kind of head chopping things and the, the Arkham kind of building up a combo meter and that kind of stuff for it to yeah. actually feel really good. So it feels totally stunted at the moment. Um, yeah. Hmm. Which is a shame because that's all a minute for already. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you, you have some choice over to what to upgrade, so you could focus on combat stuff and get mm. that stuff. Actually, no, it's, uh, it's not true entirely because a lot of it is level locked. So you don't have to do a certain story quest for most of these things. In fact, it's, it's reasonably good with that in that, like, there's sort of 10 skill trees or whatever, and the first nine are just level based. Um, mm. and then the 10th one is story based. So those are only the story abilities. 
Um, whereas previously, like games like Far Cry have often locked off like just really good abilities oh, yeah. to quests for no reason. Um, but uh, yeah, there are level restrictions. So it's like the you know the, the third skill in this tier. Um, you might have three skill points, but you're only level five, and it requires you to be level eighteen. So mm. you can't get that stuff quickly. Yeah, mm. the good things. There are so many big games out at the moment. Like I haven't played XCOM yet. Assassin's Creed and this and stuff that I just feel paralyzed by it. Like, I don't know when, if ever, right? Like, I think people absolutely raving about Shadow of War would have got me. And I like the team and I like the game. I like the first game. But the moment I don't feel the I managed the pull. To, to yet again be completely uh surprised when the monolith logo came up i don't know why <laughs> this is my mental block i can't remember that this is by monolith <laughs> yeah 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 um really nice you know team i think and then you know i'm kind of glad they got to make their weird game again at scale yeah Agreed. but yeah um, then it's destiny later in the month oh yeah yeah, yeah jesus oh, christ there's a lot coming out it seems it's weird that it isn't brilliant uh, or that it hasn't had a you know it hasn't been the slam dunk that it could have been because the last game was so good and it was, it was so close to greatness and everyone was so agreed on what was wrong with it um and they just seem to have like it's still muddy mordor for the first four hours or something um mm. which was one of the problems of the first game is just a really uninspiring place um and the first four hours are just the they just repeat the first game really really slowly just have to really like soldier slog your way through things you already that aren't new or interesting in this game they really don't know how to showcase what they've got. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's the killer for me, I think. I don't think I have time anymore to kind of know that something's going to get good in 10 hours. Yeah. Mm. And if I feel that way, then, then I'm the ultimate, like, give a game a mile time sink, man. <laughs> like, then I think, yeah, maybe, maybe maybe that's just a stage of life thing. But mm. it definitely feels like Warner has seen this as their opportunity to have an Assassin's Creed. And yeah. And it suddenly needs to expand in every direction at once. It does feel more like Assassin's Creed than Origins does, having played Origins for a few hours. Hmm. Because you do get those instant kills and you do get those moments of just being satisfyingly brilliant in combat where Origins is much more of a kind of difficult game about level disparities and taking on challenges that are at your level in right. order to progress. Interesting. Hmm. Hmm. What have you been playing, Chris? I, uh, so I um, have had a bit of a disrupted week because I just got back from Las Vegas where I was at Eve Vegas. So I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago. Um, you, you'll be proud to know that I haven't come back and installed Eve Online. I didn't <laughs> think about it. So what I have done is come back and installed Eve Valkyrie ah. Warzone, which came out last week. So is at least topical. So Warzone is, it's interesting. Valkyrie's kind of happened backwards, I think. In the Warzone is the non-VR um, kind of revamped team space dogfighting game that they've made out of the Eve Valkyrie VR experience. Mm. You can still use a VR headset for it, but um, I'm writing something about this at the moment and it'll probably go up next week. But um, they perceive the VR side of the game now as kind of like the premium experience on right. top of a game that's a lot more accessible. Um, they're very open about the fact that Overwatch has been a big influence in how the game is structured now in terms of like it's at the Overwatch price point of about 25 quid. Um, it has a sort of equivalent number of ships, which are functionally classes. Mm. Um, 
it has a bunch of different modes and you get loot boxes by leveling up that contain skins it, you know lawbreakers it's it's that model of um well previously a model that's been used predominantly for fps games is being used for a space shooter um which i think is a, a perfectly it's a it's an interesting and i think appropriate thing to do with the game they'd made uh, in order to break it out of the niche that vr the hobbyist niche that vr inevitably is hmm. What's interesting about this is, so they are doing some things to kind of bring it more in line with expectations of, um, space sims. And so they're, they are working on like, um, track, AR, track AR and HOTAS support and things like that. But it's really not a sim because I think a lot of the, 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 the sort of requirements of designing for VR, but also designing something a little bit more accessible mean that like being a space sim in the way that Elite is, for example, isn't really the goal of the game. And for me, it ends up in an interesting place where it feels somewhere between, um, somewhere between elite and a really fast paced kind of descent derived dogfighting game mm. of which there aren't many. Like the only one I can think of is Strike Vector and like fucking nobody's played Strike oh, yeah, Vector yeah. apart from me, apart, as far as I can tell. Um, um, and so you kind of enter various modes and <laughs> Tom, I just enjoyed your, your, your rum, please gesture. <laughs> That's good. Um, so you, you load up a multiplayer game and you enter various modes and they range from team deathmatch, which is good. Um, they're all good. Like there's a new capture the flag style mode, which works pretty well actually with spaceships. Um, capture the relic is a good thing to do. And then the kind of standout mode is carrier assault, which is this sort of multi-stage thing where, um, the goal is to kind of initially capture points in the middle of the map and then do a bit of a Death Star trench run on the enemy ship. And it's <laughs> kind of dramatic and it, it does work. I think, um, I, and I, I'm still sort of plugging away at it. And the more I play, the more I kind of get used to its rhythm. Hmm. And I think that's a big thing because, um, I, as people who listen to this podcast know, really, I really like spaceships and I really like, um, dogfighting games. So I feel like I get this, but because I like those games a lot and there aren't many of them, getting each new one is a question of understanding what's specifically weird or different about it. And I think every game that has taken on the challenge of doing dogfighting for kind of mass multiplayer game um, has had to try and solve some of the fundamental problems with dogfighting, particularly space dogfighting. Like, do you have Newtonian physics or not? Um, how do you avoid this turning into two players turning in a circle forever mm. where the one with the tighter turning circle wins? Yeah. Like, and all of those questions. And I think it has decent answers for those things actually. And so that stem, but that stems from the fact that actually it's quite slow. And I wonder if it's quite slow because of VR, because going too fast would be <laughs> kind of grim. Um, with the exception of the sequence at the beginning where you get vomited from the space pipe, which is an unknown experience that we talked about quite a lot in the context of VR Valkyrie, that's still intact. Um, it doesn't have a throttle in the traditional way. You are always going forwards and then you can either press one button to go a bit faster on a limited fuel gauge or another button to brake. So you, there are essentially three speed states. There are going faster, going normal and braking. And it's pretty binary in that way, which is interesting because like adjusting throttle up and down is kind of a traditional game thing. And, and those sort of top speeds and things vary by ship class, but it means that you spend it's, I think it feels to me that there's not a huge with special abilities, notwithstanding there's not a huge speed difference between the varying ships and there's maneuverability difference, but that's offset against the specific weapons those ships have. So they've given themselves a kind of balance pass strength in the, unlike elite, 
you know, specific ship chassis have specific weapons. So the most maneuverable ship in the game in terms of turning circle is very, very vulnerable and has like a charge weapon where you charge up and it fires one shot. Mm. So you can turn inside someone's circle very quickly, but if you miss, it doesn't matter. So that sort of thing is quite finely balanced. However, that's quite a subtle thing to get right. So initially what you experience is everything feeling quite slow, but also um, because I think, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to peek under the hood here, but I, I suspect a lot of the balance is to do with how quickly weapons recharge and the risk associated with the shooting. So ships that have quite slow turning circles and are quite cumbersome tend to have like just sort of very sort of broad forward firing Gatling cannons, which means that when you do get a targeting solution, you do lots of damage very quickly. And it's relatively reliable as long as you can hold the cursor on somebody for a certain amount of time. Mm. Whereas the ships that are very nimble have like finesse weapons. And that's a nice way of balancing it. But across the board, most weapons in the game fire in a huge burst and then take a surprisingly long time to come back online. Um, and all that sort of, I guess, maybe boring mechanical stuff, notwithstanding, it adds up to this really interesting thing where I think the more I play it, the more I appreciate it. I think they've got a lot of this right in terms of like creating a game which reliably creates dogfights where players have control with lots of players at once, which is a hard thing to get right for a dogfighting game because 3D space is hard for people to pass. There is terrain in the form of asteroids and debris and stuff, but, you know, most PvP games, um, Elite Close Quarters Combat, which was their PvP mode, suffered for this a bit, turn into like a kind of furball of players where everyone gets killed by the thing they didn't see right um whereas in the valkyrie i've played so far one those dogfights look great from a distance like it really does look cool when lots of ships are going out of different classes because you can see lots of different weapons fire streaking past and everyone's got a different target within the melee and the targeting system does quite a good job of showing you where your target is even if there are loads of enemies around you while also showing you the relative position of other enemies um but while you're kind of in it you um because health bars are quite large and because weapons tend to not fire for too long before kind of overheating, you feel like you more often than not have an op- have options. It's rare that you just get kind of deleted, except by what some, there are, there are ults in the game and some of the ults can just delete you, hmm. but that's the thing. But the trade off for that is that actually doing damage yourself feels a little bit slow. Actually maneuvering yourself feels a little bit slow. The time to kill is very high. I think uh, to be honest, it's very high in most space games. If you've ever been in like a dogfight in the elite, yeah. it takes like, you know what I mean? It's like two people trying to smother each other with a pillow um, <laughs> while, while spinning in a circle. It's like two synchronized swimmers trying to kill each other. with a pillow. <laughs> um, and I've seen things. You've been <laughs> really, yeah. Attack ships trying to smother each other with a pillow <laughs> off the shoulder of Orion. And, um, and, and so, and this it's like, and I, but I think there's a decent game there. Like, I wonder if it's slightly, I don't want to say too expensive, but so I feel like any game like this at the moment, whether it's Lawbreak, cause any game other than Overwatch that has had, a, you know, $6 million marketing budget plus whatever it is now, um, for any game other than that, this price point and this game structure, um, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And I would use the example of, uh, Rainbow Six Siege as an example where it has worked, where over time that game has pulled together a really strong community and it's yeah. just got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, but there are other games that haven't worked that have really struggled. For Honor really struggled. Um, uh, looks like Lawbreakers is struggling, right? Uh, it's games I like basically. Like, you know, I, 
And I think um, one of the big factors there is often price point as well as how weird something is. And I do feel that Valkyrie might be slightly overpriced at the moment at 25 quid. You know, this, it feels like it's home is in the CSGO price bracket where Rainbow Six ended up after a certain amount of time. Um, but also I wonder a lot about like how much appetite there actually is for space dogfighting as a game experience. Because I think, you know, I think they've had a decent stab at it despite arcadifying the experience and even because they've arcadified it to prevent it from being two dudes with HOTAS flight controllers flying in a circle forever trying to smother each other with a pillow. Um, and I don't know. It's weird. Like space games in general feel like a really weird area at the moment because everyone's experimenting with it. Hot Sauce Citizen is one of the most expensive, ambitious projects around. And yet there's the question of whether or not this experience is ever going to be for more people than the very passionate niche that really, really want it mm. relative to the accessibility and kind of instant, gra- instant gratification of a traditional first person shooter. Don't know if that's, I don't know. It's kind of an open question. I think, like, I mean, spaceships are relatively inscrutable compared to characters that you that sort of, yeah. you know, if you, you see Hanzo, you know, he's got a bow, you think, okay, might be good at range, might be a sniper, <laughs> you know, you know, you know, a bow is going to be like, not going to fire very often, you know, roughly what his capabilities mm. might be. And obviously, you learn more about what he does as he progresses. But, you know, at a glance, you sort of roughly see what the characters are. A big character, probably a bit tanky, you know, that kind of stuff. There's a visual yeah. language to it that you can identify. And I wonder if with spaceships, it's, becomes like quite a technical uh, thing about loadouts and turning speeds you know uh that is less, is less easy for part of people to pass yeah it's interesting because they do have like the sniper ship the shotgun ship the tanks that kind of thing mm. but you're right like you have to you have to go to the extra step of reading the description right like it's not far mm. but you have to go to clicking the, dis- the button to read the description of the ship from just looking at the man with the giant shield and understanding he's yes. the tank yeah i think like um there's a reason both Overwatch and Team Fortress 2, their key art is just a big group shot of the classes, because uh, those are games where you can just look at the classes. Seeing them all together shows you, here's the range of experiences you're going to have in this game. Um, and you might not know what they all do, but you get, you get a sense of the variety there. And, um, you know, they can be characters and look appealing in, uh, in a way that spaceships can't to some people <laughs> and can to some other people yeah um, like i used to love i used to obsess over wing commander and all the various different fighter types yeah as though it was a kind of like military spectrum of interesting different flying experiences that but i was mostly interested because it was cool spaceships and it's like diff- slightly different ones were exciting to me mm. but maybe if you don't have that it's difficult to sell uh that as a mm. multiple casual multiplayer experience yeah I mean, it, it seems to be doing okay um i don't know exact numbers but like you can always find a game like mm. that bodes well like you, you match immediately yeah so that's positive i wouldn't be surprised actually if like space dog fighting is a lot more niche than star citizen which is sort of um i feel like the number of people who are excited about no man's sky you know um, mm. might potentially be excited about star citizen if they haven't sworn off <laughs> that kind of game um whereas dogfighting is very much just a sort of mechanical thing um it's not the sort of the infinite promise of everything you've ever wanted from star trek and star wars combined <laughs> yeah that's true i think i think also like there's a strange i think this is true of almost all game experiences that derive from cinematic experiences ultimately like there's lots of games that promise to recreate the car chase or the gunfight or whatever but um so I think about this a lot having recent, uh, in, as I, as I am also a person in the process of running a pen and paper Star Wars campaign. Mm. Um, I said this before in the pod, but like, um, 
I think I said this in the miniatures pod as well, actually, like Star Wars is sort of like, obviously Star Wars is an archetype for space dog fighting in games, right? Like that's ground zero for this sort of thing. But in Star Wars, that sort of the, the, the logic of those sequences of pow- fundamentally plot-based, right? Like ships blow up when it's time for them to blow up. Characters swoop in for the kill when it's time for that to be dramatic. Mm. They're not logical. Um, Battlestar Galactica, the TV, the new, the newer TV show is an example of an attempt to kind of add some logic to that stuff. But even then, it's powerfully driven by plot and the requirements of the plot. Um, whereas actually, um, dogfighting in any context, like Lone Zero G is quite a technical thing and quite a dry thing. Um, it tends to be over very quickly once someone wins. Right. There's lots of reasons why it wouldn't necessarily be a fun game experience if it's recreated exactly. Obviously, it's fun to simulate. You know, if you're into your flight sims and your combat flight sims, then fine. But in talking about like a mass, like translating the fantasy into something that is mass market accessible is actually surprisingly difficult. Mm. And I, I feel like I think Valkyrie has some interesting solutions, but I feel this way about all a lot of and there's been a recent slate of space games. I feel this way about all of them, that all of them get like something right while trying to also avoid going full sim and alienating people. And also you can't go full sim for space dog fighting because it doesn't exist. So everyone's in their interpretations of that fantasy. Everyone's getting something right and something else kind of slightly off. So Valkyrie doesn't give you the granular control of your ship that you might expect from a more, a bigger sim. And also the time to kill feels very high most of the time, which means that you don't get the, the star Wars moment or even the X-Wing versus TIE fighter moment where the enemy ship kind of passes across the central part of your crosshairs and you fire once and they blow up and it's really gratifying. You get them, they pass across your crosshairs and you do one fifth of their health. And then that happens another five times and then you kill them. And then you do a barrel roll through the explosion, like a very slow wedge Antilles. <laughs> like, um, and I find that really interesting because shooters, we were at a point where we can talk about different ways that different people are independently equally successful at doing the same thing. Like, people have made brilliant shooters of every kind, right? People have made brilliant, highly lethal shooters. People have made very brief, brilliant, like, brilliant low-lethality shooters. And they all kind of can be top-level experiences. And I sort of feel the way about space dogfighting at the moment that there are lots of different attitudes to it, but no one's made the one that just feels right mm. yet. Mm. And that suggests to me that that's not possible. Mm. There's a brilliant episode of Battlestar Galactica called Scar. Yeah. Um, season two episode i think yeah which is about i think it's a couple of pilots going into an asteroid belt to hunt down a cylon fighter that has been renowned for somehow killing just loads and loads of human fighters and that they're supposed to be kind of disposable drones for the most part but the idea that one would be an individual or some kind, it's basically the red baron yeah in space it's got a cool scar it's a robot with a cool scar <laughs> it's a robot with a cool scar uh which has something a little bit magical and interesting about it but um it is this cat and mouse battle uh with full kind of with space combat according to Newtonian physics uh, that plays out over the course of the episode. It's kind of like an, an amazing self-contained episode and a, a brilliant kind of design core for a, a highly lethal space shooter that just lasts for 10 minutes in an asteroid belt with a bunch of people. And you, that hasn't been made yet. Um, I think like you, you can't do the auto fly thing where people just fly around in circles. I think that Newtonian thing of flipping over and doing skill shots has to be a part of a kind of highly skilled, mm. highly lethal space shooter. Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, honestly, I think Strike Factor is one of the games that get closest to it. Actually, um, yeah, this is almost timely because I know World of Warplanes is on the verge of its second 2.0 kind of re-release. Mm. And, um, I always thought that game got some things right and some things wrong. Like, 
uh, I do think atmospheric flight helps a lot. Like it adds the dimension of climbing being harder than diving. Yeah. So the battle for vertical advantage is a meaningful thing in atmospheric dogfighting. It's something space dogfighting doesn't really have an equivalent for because if you enable Newtonian physics, then simply rotating on the spot is an option a lot yeah. of the time, which... I was watching um, new Star Trek and uh, they're still saying shit like they they appear near a sun and uh, they're too close to the sun and the guy's like, full reverse. <laughs> Pretty reverse. <laughs> like, like, in, in space, particularly if you're trying to get away from a sun, I would think it's more efficient to specify the direction you want to go in as away from the sun. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Take us away from the sun, however you need to do that. Not Don't necessarily thrust backwards, just like rotate the way we want to go and go that way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, like... We, we really like our atmospheric metaphors for understand, for space drama, basically. Because yeah. I think space drama to some extent requires it, right? Like, um, you know, realistic space combat looks nothing like your mind's eye hmm. picture of what it should look like. Even in Battlestar, where, Definitely. yes, it's technically Newtonian, but they still all look like planes. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, like it, I was thinking, trying to think if the Expanse did this well, but even then, when actually showing the... The, the ships they're all on kind of a plane shooting at each other which isn't how it would be like it would be a scattered sort of yeah. series of people appended mm. ships well ironically if you look at what an actual eve that's battle true, looks actually. like yeah, yeah. you're looking at lots of ships just at weird angles and like this kind yeah. of like cluster and yeah. that's kind of right and a lot of them don't move because they don't need to move mm. like um in its in its extended fiction mass effect kind of got this right as well like what a space battle would actually look like is people firing shots from miles away yeah. and then no wait to see what happens curve, uh just like shrapnel, like shrapnel with no friction to resist its continued acceleration is yeah. devastating in space. Yeah. You don't need giant lasers. You just need just a bulk shrapnel hmm. pretty effective against. Um, I watched a, a bit of The Expanse recently. and um, I watched the pilot a, episode last night. Weird. There was a space hmm. battle in it. Um, and I was quite impressed with how it looked, actually. It was like the ships were just spinning like fucking insanely <laughs> like they weren't at all coherently angled or anything they just like looked like lumps of rock just spinning through space who happened to like fire auto turrets at each other every now and then uh yeah the expanse is an interesting show it's kind of it's a really determined attempt to do like proper realistic you know, hard sci-fi kind of mm. industrial sci-fi something that might actually happen in 200 years um with actual political you know divides between the belt and mars and earth and all of that um but bloody hell it's impenetrable as a tv show <laughs> it's cool i'm glad they made it yeah i literally just watched the first episode last night while extremely jet lagged so <laughs> okay yeah Not i didn't much watch it, it. Uh, yeah, I started watching the first episode and I didn't really get on with it. And then for some reason, I just dipped back into it randomly and just started watching from the second season. And I've got on second much better with it now. Better, yeah. The first thing that um, I find attracting is the um, there's a lady in the first episode who is the leader of the future war cult in Destiny. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah. She's Lakshmi 12 in Destiny. Yeah, and, she's um, a UN council member. Or yeah. And I found that I, I had that moment of like, I know that voice really, really. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. I was freaked out by that as well. Yeah. She's a really cool character, actually, in the second season. Yeah, I'm going to sit with it, but yeah. But that's what I'm saying. It's like, it feels like cinema and TV now, cinematic TV has figured this experience out. But I, and given that it is my favorite game fantasy of like space dogfights, it's the only one that I think about a lot like in terms of solving. I find it interesting that games are really struggling to fully solve it, right? Mm. Like to get, to get to the point where there have been shooters that make you feel like you are in an action scene in a movie very successfully right um i don't know if even the great old space sims that people love fully get there hmm. yet 
I don't know. I want I want the I want the game that can recreate the Battle of Yavin from Star Wars without being either an on rail shooter as some of the Star Wars games are, or a flying in a circle, getting a crosshair solution, then firing a couple of times kind of experience. There's something about the cinematic shorthand of the way those moments are presented that I feel like games will never get to. And that's something that, yeah. I mean, um, but despite that, Valkyrie, I think, is a, and particularly in its new form, which is a smart thing to do with that game, is a good dogfighting game. But whether or not it reaches people outside of that niche, I think, depends on its ability to make you feel like you're in Star Wars. Mm. And I don't know. Mm. Basically. Saw a good tweet. Uh, someone saying, coming out of Blade Runner 2049, saying, oh, now we know what video games are going to look like for the next 10 years. Just, <laughs> you know, the extent to which video games lift from films to, mm. to try and, you know. I hope so. It did. When, amazing, I, yeah. when I was watching it, I was, it made, that I was, uh, really impressed with, um, with it, particularly visually. Um, and it did make me sort of think, like, why don't we see, sort of stylistic jumps forward like this in games mm. like we we do get weird uh like strange rendering styles and like there's the extreme fringes um like in the indie scene and the, every now and then um uh a really cool looking mainstream game like journey or um uh, tf2 was one um but it is so rare like it, it's just i think what struck me is there were just so many fucking sci-fi games and yet they all look pretty similar and yeah. then this does not look like any of those, even though loads of them are uh, strongly inspired by Blade Runner, the original. This is also strongly inspired by Blade Runner, the original, and yet looks totally different to all those things. Yeah, I've, uh, it made me think of Bioshock as being the only thing that I haven't seen in a film. Like, that was a thing mm, I've only ever experienced yeah. in a game, and that's why I was That feels like a film waiting to happen, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, mm. But yeah, I, th- I felt that... But I, did, I, I was watching Blade Runner and thinking, how have I not been in an open world where I've gotten into my hover my hover car and driven over it and then landed at my house <laughs> like how's that not, how has that not happened i mean i guess maybe cyberpunk uh cd project cyberpunk will do that kind of stuff but i i really want that as a kind of just existing as a citizen mm, yeah that, i suspect that city i suspect the the mega city is one of the most complicated things for a game to realize mm. um in a there are a few games that have tried it but like if you consider that it took a long time for games to get comfortable doing cities where buildings were not just f- obstacles with a texture that made them look like yeah. a building yeah like the mega city is the thing that comes after that, right? Where like you've yeah. got like a layered arcology or something. Bring it on! That's what I want next. <laughs> yeah. Games. Honestly, I, I think a big part of um, the Blade Runner feel that games would struggle with um, is actually the lethality of it. Like I think one of the things that makes that universe feel the way it does, particularly in in the most recent film, but I'd argue in both, is like it's quite a kind of quiet mood thing, mood based, like moody place where people don't say very much. And then there's like one extremely loud gunshot and someone is dead, which is very anti-video game where where it would be someone talking all of the fucking time and then 16 people fire guns for four minutes <laughs> and then a lot of people noir, are dead. isn't it? Yeah, yeah I mean, gunshot matter. that's definitely how the gunplay works and that's not something that video games usually do. Um, uh, but also both films, uh, maybe more so the first one, uh, involve a lot of brawling. Like the thing I noticed when i rewatched the first one is like deckard like has a gun he could shoot these people but he somehow always gets into a fist fight even though he's specifically told they're really good at close yeah, combat yeah. yes yeah i don't want to talk too much about the new one for spoilers but it's i think its weakest moment is in terms of visual stuff is the one instance where it does a blade runner one style flippy kicks moment fight <laughs> which is one of its you know like hmm. yeah but no you're right like 
someone pointed out on Twitter that like the perfect Blade Runner game would be like L.A. Noir, pretty much, where you use that conversation system to just do Voigtkamp tests. Like <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is um the the Blade Runner adventure game actually was amazing at capturing all that stuff. You do mm. Voigtkamp t- tests on people, and it's not like a, a proper systemic thing. It's just like, pretty much multiple choice stuff, but they capture the look and feel of the world so well. It's it's really effective. God, the um baseline test thing oh, yeah, in the new fucking one was amazing great. love that yeah, so <laughs> i didn't good. know what the hell was happening i'm like this is just hypnotic <laughs> and, and so cool but kind of, it's amazing you sort of figure it out it's like mm. because when he does well let's not get into it too much because it's no. plot stuff <laughs> but it is really really cool yeah yeah when you realize what it's trying to do um yeah they get yeah let's not turn into the blade runner podcast but <laughs> cool yeah film. very cool film. shall we do questions yes i'm extremely ready also it's been an extremely long break Yep. I had a lot of rum. We talked about Blade Runner for like 45 we minutes. Don't want Blade, we didn't want to do the Blade Runner podcast, so we did the Blade Runner podcast off air. <laughs> no one will ever hear what we discussed. Yeah. We should just do a podcast where we talk about films at some point. Mm. Let us know if that's if you want you that. Like. Yeah. If not, that's fine. <laughs> Our first question comes from Ben, who writes, Dear Crate and Crowbar Double R. I don't understand. Last week, I watched a trailer for Heat Signature that included Tom Francis's face. And it did not match my expectations in the slightest. <laughs> I thought he'd have a shaved head. What game have similarly misled you? <laughs> Whose appearances were not at all what you expected based on their names or voices? Thanks, Benjamin. Can I ask Benjamin to write back to us? Explaining why he thought Tom Francis I, had a bald head. When he said that, I thought, do I come across like Jonathan Blow? Because <laughs> he does have a shaved head. Or he may, maybe these days he doesn't, but it, he's sort of typically photographed with a shaved head. Mm, I think of him as a bald man. <laughs> uh, maybe that's where that preconception came well, from. Your, your hair is usually pretty short, Tom. Yeah, it used to be... It's gotten a little bit bouncier right now. But... <laughs> Uh, well, I apologize for misleading you <laughs> in this extremely subtle and unpreventable way. Uh, I did have a similar thing with, um, I listened to Idle Thumbs for years before seeing any, mm. any of those people, um, uh, having any clue what they looked like. And I always imagined for some reason Chris Remo being very fat. <laughs> I don't know why, but from his voice, I pictured him as, as very fat, and he's not. You see, this is, this is weird. Can we discuss this question? We discuss this. And I also imagine Chris Rimo. And I also imagine Chris Rimo being very tall. Oh, and when I met Chris, and we're the same height, I had this kind of moment of Chris commonality where I said, we're both <laughs> tiny. That's amazing. There's two tiny podcast Chrises. Um, uh, and uh, that was a wonderful moment. But uh, nonetheless, apparently Chris Rimo is an extremely Netflix. misleading voice. Yeah. You should really work on that. Um, but yeah, it is a weird. fantastic voice, a fantastic singing voice, you know, all, the whole package. Yeah. Um, it is weird that we have any preconceptions from people's voices, right? That is strange. Mm. I remember I remember very fondly the day that we got this new recording equipment for the Crate and Crowbar when we tweeted a picture of me and Marsh kind of, you know, gurning next to the mics. And the responses were almost universally like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you look like. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> And we'd only just gotten a Patreon at that point. Thank God we managed to get to the the uh, the 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 point where we could afford fancy new audio equipment because otherwise we'd have been we'd have been completely fucked. We get this also. We get this response every year when we do the annual Christmas video. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. video pod uh, again. Just um, just profound disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> 
so I'm sorry, I suppose. <laughs> Next, Tom writes, Hello, crumbs and crumpets. One for Chris, I think. Brackets, optional. <laughs> Ellipsis. I'm on my way home from a very tiring opening evening at the school I work in after a minor argument with my head teacher. One of our sixth formers, college age-ish, hang on, what is that in America? Middle school? I don't... Is probably the only boy in our very poor Welsh Valley to apply for a PPE at Oxford Uni, at an Oxbridge Uni, and has asked our head teacher, what books should I have read? While our head decried what he called the Welsh Valley's cultural desert, I may have casually suggested that while this sixth former may not have read Catcher in the Rye, I know he's played Gone Home, which is a fudged comparison, I admit. This was part of a longer conversation, but ended with me basically suggesting that his vision of culturally significant texts was a bit narrow. Now, question: Which texts in our chosen interactive medium do you think you could, do you think could convince an Oxbridge admission board was worthy of standing next to English literary classics when surmising if one was culturally literate? Thanks for reading, Tom. What is a PPE? Uh, philo- philosophy, politics, and economics. Ah. It's essentially the British government. Uh, academy program yeah. unfortunately oh, right. like one of a genuine problem <laughs> with our demo- a genuine genuine yeah. problem with our democracy is that the vast majority of our parliamentarians mm. do ppe um and it is you know i mean it's a broad-ranging degree and it used to have a very specific kind of um cultural uh political leaning towards the left and now it's a kind of general well often seen as a general purposes mm. kind of political training almost like mm. vocational training for politics uh, which is yeah a bad thing. That's completely irrelevant to the question, mm. but nonetheless, um, seems to be two sides to this. So the first is games that could be seen as kind of culturally significant from the outside, and the second is things to say to get into Oxford or Cambridge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like we established in the intro to the podcast that Portal is pretty culturally significant in terms mm. of the sort of. Uh, definitely in the field of games, but also it feels like it has a, appeal outside of games as well. I think um, Dear Esther is interesting here, as is Edith Finch, but I would argue not everybody's gone to the Raptor. Raptor? Rapture? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's gone to the Everyone's Raptor. They try and stay away from the Raptor. Everyone's gone to the Raptor pen. Um, <laughs> uh, simply because Dear Esther is kind of an interesting experiment in like having the same story told in different ways over and over again. So every mm. time you play it, you get different voice clips and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, Actually, her story is very interesting for that. Yeah, her story is fascinating for this. So this is, so I would say this, like for this specific aim, video games are interesting and useful because they explore instability of meaning. And this is going to sound really wanky, but my argument would be that uh, like an Oxbridge interviewer is not going to be looking for, well, it depends where you apply and it depends which kind of interview you get, but they're not going to be looking for, um, like specific cultural kind of shibboleths that you have to pass under, things you have to have read hmm. so much as they're going to be looking for a particular way of looking at text. Um, and you may, if you are feeling brave in the interview, you could probably make a convincing tech a convincing case for why certain video games helped you understand text in a different way. So like if you could argue that her story or dear Esther helped you understand the reader's role in kind of piecing together the text themselves in a kind of death of the author type way, 
then I think that's a very impressive thing to kind of have in your disposal as an 17, 18 year old university student who's probably been trained to look for authorial intent. Hmm. That would be, I think that's not a bad shout actually. Like, and also, if in your gaming career you've ever managed to headshot the author, that's worth extra points. Yeah, if you can, um, if you run over a whole load of authors in a row, <laughs> that's Garanga. Yeah, that is Garanga. <laughs> I think um, the, the best part of this question is um, the from the outside part, because that's the real problem. You could make an excellent case yeah. for this, but if the person you're speaking to isn't doesn't have the basic contextual knowledge to understand even what you're saying a game yeah. is <laughs> then which is a yeah. huge problem in you know mainstream uh organizations from like mainstream newspapers in our country and, and also mainstream educational institutions like i mean they you could talk to a professor who literally won't know what the fuck you're talking about you're talking about video game yeah yeah I absolutely just, just had a sudden like flash of um uh an expansion called Dishonored 2, Death of the Author. <laughs> so I had the opposite in my head the other day. As a consequence of various fucking twit bullshit, um, I ended up with Adele's hello from the outside stuck in my head. <laughs> but like, hello from the outsider. <laughs> I bet you want to know how I died. <laughs> the author killed me. Yeah, and that lasted like, I'm not sure that's what happens. But like that lasted a couple, good couple of days in Vegas. Um, Dota is a rich cultural text. I was quite <laughs> drunk the entire time. <laughs> um, it's difficult though. Like, you, you, I, th- I think video games have a lot to say about this stuff, and I don't think you could take it to an authority, uh, so to speak. What is sorry to do it again, but uh, in the expansion, <laughs> just the death of the author. What is the non-lethal takedown for the author? <laughs> um, <laughs> which is usually ends up being a fate worse than death. Oh God! What is the M- movie adaptation? <laughs> <laughs> yes, <okay>. oh god <laughs> we're not gonna kill him we're gonna strap him to this chair and that makes a movie adaptation yeah, of the exactly. last it's like no no just kill me now <laughs> <laughs> oh oh dear um <laughs> Probably, what were we talking about? Done that one. Yeah, um, <laughs> like but no, to. you're right, Tom. Like explaining this to a generation not familiar with this is the problem. Yeah. In fact, I would argue that in an Oxbridge interview setting, the thing that is likely to impress people is your ability to articulate why this medium they don't understand is important. Mm. Because you know the thing to understand for students applying to this kind of thing. Hopefully, this is useful to somebody. Is that um, fundamentally that process is establishing that you can get an idea across eloquently. Um, off the cuff and have an idea probably in the first through place. speech right mm-hmm. like um it is from the old school idea of a viva where you have to stand up in front of people and defend your phd to them this mm-hmm. is like the beginning of that process so if you can stand if you can sit in front of professors and say i'm going to talk about video game here and you don't understand anything about video games but i'm going to talk about instability of meaning and um reader definition and application of value and all this stuff then you will probably make a spectacular case for yourself if you can pull that off but that's a quite a big ask for an 18 year old Mm. um who hasn't had that training so yeah um maybe go for a safer thing like a book (laughs) but yeah um definitely her story dear esther edith finch for presentational reasons although edith finch is a much harder thing to explain because it's all about the ways that you use video games the language of video games in different ways which is double hard that's the dark souls of that 
particular. <laughs> Brett writes, Dear Minotaur handlers and murderous drunks. I don't even understand I don't that. Know we've killed. Greetings. Your discussion of the AI in Breath of the Wild reminded me that I'd seen enemies pick up weapons before in the also mentioned Half-Life 2. The game includes code for enemies to trade their current equipment for better alternatives picked up off the ground, but you almost never see it in action due to level construction. I only became aware of it with the mod Minerva Metastasis, where an Overwatch guard made his way up some stairs to beat me to an AR2. An unpleasant discovery, but a memorable one. In other words, the game's success in one area level design made it nearly impossible to see its virtues in another AI. Do any other examples come to mind of a game hiding its own cleverness? Cheers, and thanks for reading. Brett. That's amazing. I didn't know they did that. Yep. Because almost like it was quite well hidden. Yep. <laughs> and that's also why I have no other examples of this. Because <laughs> they're expertly hidden. Yes, from the me. weakness of this question is, what other things have been successfully hidden from you? <laughs> <laughs> There's certainly a problem with AI, though. It's very hard for AI to showcase itself to the player. Yeah, that's why there are so many barks for like, Reloading and cover me and uh, flush him out. Oh, he's using a grenade. (laughs) Yeah, the airfield. So, a clever thing that I discovered recently. I recently did a a script for a video um, that went up on the Logitech Gaming channel, um, which I do scripts for sometimes. But it was about uh, game design tricks, like things that are hidden in sort of in game design. And I love the way Fear does this. So, Mm. Fear has. Two, like, uh, I, I wrote something about games that have two brains, essentially, like, in order to create, like, the impression of intelligence. So every individual enemy marine in fear has its own sort of basic AI process that determines whether it's going to take cover, whether it's going to throw a grenade, whether it's going to try and shoot you or pin you down or flush you out or whatever, right? And then the squad as a whole has a brain that knows what each of the individual entities are trying to do and what that does is so let's say you have um marine a and marine a has independently decided that it's going to throw a grenade at you to flush you out of cover what that will trigger in the squad brain is marine b will then shout at marine a throw a grenade at him (laughs) so even though the decision was made by the character that does it the game deliberately makes a different character tell that other character do it um, in order to make you think that the AI are actually ordering each other around. Mm. <laughs> and that's a really interesting idea because it's a complete uh, smoke and mirrors thing, right? Like the decision is always made at the individual and enemy basis. But having that additional layer that applies this sort of presentational thing of like they're working together has a tremendous effect on how it feels. So I think that's a really cool like little mm. trick. Like yeah. almost starting with the decision and then working backwards from there rather than trying to get the AI to actually meaningfully command each other. Yeah, you've got to have that as well to stop multiple soldiers from throwing grenades at the same time. As the same with the Half-Life thing, where you've got yeah. to have some sort of group uh, AI working to stop everyone going for the same gun. Yeah. So you, you, those hierarchies are going to exist in so different groups. very rarely in Half-Life 1 will more than two Marines shoot at you at the same time. Mm. If you ever like stand in a huge circle... They did the same thing. Bungie did the same thing in the Halo series. They do it in Destiny as well. And it's called kind of like the Kung Fu circle approach to AI. Right. Where like the notion in the Kung Fu movie, everyone kind of stands in a circle and then two, one or two people fight at a time. Also applies to shooters. Even if it looks more chaotic than that, people ducking in a cover. One of the reasons they give an AI might be ducking into cover is so they don't have to shoot. 
is so that you get the impression that you're being shot at by quote unquote everybody, but you're mm. never being shot at by more people than you can handle. Mm. I think one of the reasons why Halo um, was always lauded for its AI, like rightly so at the time, but I think a lot of the reason was because it presented you with a lot of different types of creature that behaved in very distinct ways. So you'd have little guys that would charge you and then they got scared and ran back. And you'd reckon that was such an obvious behavior. You'd, you'd register as that one type of behavior. It would give you, you characterize each type of brute based on its, uh, based on the way it actually moved mm. around in front of you. Um, and it's very difficult to do that in Call of Duty when everyone's just like a brown guard, <laughs> brown armor. Yeah. Next up, Sam writes, Dear Pix and Porter, what gets you excited about an upcoming game? I think Oblivion was the first time I followed the development of a game, and the robust systems Bethesda promised caught my interest because I was a child, and it was doing things I hadn't seen before. Sorry, I kind of pronounced that whole sentence in a way that made that sound weird, but let's go on. <laughs> in the case of Fallout 3 and Dragon Age 2, my excitement was primarily a product of my fondness for the previous games in those series, and details of the games tended to make mute my enthusiasm for games by suspicious developments wink at tom i didn't he wrote, didn't write that i, I said that. <laughs> um i think something about the transparency of the development blogs showing the challenges and changes and design philosophy makes me feel personally invested in a way i rarely do for games with a much larger marketing budget i hope other student studios aren't sending teams to capture tom f for xcom style research to unlock his secrets <laughs> I remain Sam. Uh, Postscript serum. When I first heard Philippa War was joining the show, I had great expectations and I have not been disappointed. I wrote that joke so long ago I had to preface it with the Latin pluperfect. Um, so if you're not sure, uh, Pip is the main character in Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. Thanks for that. Tom. Cool. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I said that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I'm glad that that my developer logs made this person feel invested in my games because it's a bit of a fucking risk. Because uh, we yeah. have seen recent examples of of uh, saying too much too soon can lead to backlash when you don't have those features. And I've I've talked about loads of features for heat signature that did not end up in the final. Game. So I don't know if I necessarily agree with that simply because I think it's about the degree of honesty. Like I think if anyone was to XCOM mine your brain. <laughs> The thing that they would learn is that being honest about your game is broadly good. Can I ask that I'm not skulljacked? <laughs> like, that looks really painful. No, you may not. Uh, like, kill me first, then do the stuff to my body afterwards. <laughs> That's my request. <laughs> That's a classic Tom Francis question section answer. Um, um, what I was going to say is that, like, I think either a lack of honesty from the beginning or inconsistent honesty is where a lot of problems arise from like so inconsistent honesty i would define as being very honest at the start of the project these are all the things we're excited about doing and then becoming kind of less honest even if it's by omission as the project goes on right you were kind of relentlessly honest throughout <laughs> you know what i mean like you've never had yeah. an interest in kind of hiding a mistake or backing down from a point you've said I think, I mean, there's probably a bunch of stuff that I said, oh, I'm planning to do this. And then I probably never went back and said, oh, as it turned out, that wasn't possible or, or this didn't work. But I think maybe that's okay if it's not a, if it's not like a headline feature, if I'm not, you know, um, as long as it's just a minor thing. Yeah. Uh, says the guy who, after playtesting, has ensured that the 
system that his games are named after isn't in the game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the title itself is a bit of a red herring. It's a bit like if No Man's Sky had had multiplayer, and they're like, the shit, there's loads of men in the sky. If <laughs> <laughs> um, heat sensors are in the game, they're just very rare. Um, in terms of what gets me excited about game, it's always the trailer or screenshots or GIFs, um, uh, pretty much. Uh, actually one exception to that i mean so uh the obvious uh, thing is like if i liked their last game and this is a, a direct uh, and it's a similar kind of thing uh that gives me a pretty high degree of confidence obviously and i remember uh, Dishonored 2 in particular uh everything they said about domino just had me so excited like i knew it was yeah. going to be have a have a lot of interesting mechanics in anyway but D- domino specifically just from telling me how it works this is the mechanic where you you link enemies and then whatever you do one enemy happens to all of them um uh just that in its basic form was exciting to me and then they kept giving examples of like oh and so you can do this and you can like link this enemy to the civilian and then push the civilian off a cliff and the enemy falls off a cliff and um yeah it, that was uh, hugely exciting is that because it was linking a thing to another thing to <laughs> i do like to link things <laughs> uh that's quite a rare example actually i can't think of many others where like just something in text has got me that excited mm. um it tend these days it tends to be just because there's so many games uh i've got to see something that, mm. that gets me excited but that said um uh you know just having a good art style in a screenshot i can get unreasonably excited about a game without knowing anything about it like uh fugl f-u-g-l mm. um uh i've never game. played that still but um uh just from like a little bit of motion of that game i'm immediately like oh my god i want to play this no matter what even if there's nothing to do in the game i just want to play it Hmm. yeah i think for me it's like franchise sequels notwithstanding it's like it comes down to trailers i think for me it comes down to like really nicely produced different trailers like good choices of music good ways of showcasing what a game is about actually i would say this and i appreciate this isn't supposed to be the um, you know, like the Tom Francis is right about things power hour, <laughs> but, um, any game that has actually adopted your sensibility with regard to explaining what you do in the game in the first sentence of its description kind of instantly gets that to me because it shows that the developers get it. Hmm. Like that's started to make a difference, right? Cause I think that information is out there now that it works if you choose to describe the action of the game, the, the, the appeal of the game, the key mechanic the the combination of those things in the initial way that you describe it then i know immediately whether or not i'm excited about your game but i'm far more likely to get excited from that point than not relative to a law heavy explanation or something like that that's a classic mistake isn't it yeah but it's nonetheless it's more common than not and like genuinely tom i think you can probably claim ownership of the process of like (laughs) getting past that even though like you know it, it you know, I think there's some element of the old PC Gamer style guide in there, right? Like the whole yeah, explain definitely. what the game is in the first 50 words was mm. something that we all came into our writing careers thinking about constantly. And it's amazing that evades games marketing quite as much as it does. Especially for brand new games and brand new franchises that, you know, no one's ever seen before saying X is a game about doing Y to Z. Yeah, and that's why this is exciting in like think, two sentences. It's a great thing to do. I wonder if the reason that um, it's not... Uh, as common as it should be to just explain what you do in the game is that like marketing in other fields there are so many 
every time I read the description for any product, I sort of have pity for the person who had to write it. Like if it's a toothbrush or it's a, uh, it's a new hamburger, um, and you just think like that this is not something you can really communicate in text very well. Uh, and so the, the practice of marketing has been like, how do you upsell it? How do you take what the, the factual description is boring? So how do you be creative on top of that and then, uh, create some pizzazz and some flash? Uh, and for selling hamburgers, uh, they probably do a, uh, a way better job than, um, uh, than I ever could. But I don't think games are like that. I think they're fundamentally different. I think the basics of a game can be massively exciting. Just tell me literally mm. just the fundamental factual cold dry description of what you do in it and sometimes that can be like oh shit i can do that that's amazing i think there's so there's a weakness here which is the games we literally just mentioned for oxbridge admission <laughs> are very hard yeah. to do in this context dear esther her story dear um what remains of Edith finch even everybody's gone to the velociraptor like these are hard games to describe in that format Right, like Dear Esther becomes something like wander a Hedrobian hillside and consider a mystery. <laughs> Is there a good version good. of the that text description me, for that game? That doesn't sound bad to me. It doesn't sound terrible, but what I mean is it's not as grabby as like infiltrate spaceships and yeah. deal with accidents. Yeah, right? like, it's, it's yeah, very. It's my like, advice is very biased towards the kinds of games I like and the kinds of games I make. <laughs> exactly. Right. So, like, similarly, her story is like. Um, piece together a story by watching lots of video clips and interpreting them in your own way that gives you clues to future clues <laughs> but you could say you know her story is a game about being a detective uh, a woman has been interviewed by the police who is she it's your job it's your job to find out that yeah you know. what i'm uh, yes i guess you, you can make it work but I, i'm mm. saying that you move further away from kind of like the pure kind of explain the key verb of the game yeah yeah because those games prove that verbs aren't wholly necessary right like mm. Like, it's a good, it's a good, like, uh, Shadow of Middle Earth TM, Shadow of War, should be advertised as seduce a nation of orcs <laughs> <laughs> and conquer their abusive masters. Flip many captains. Yeah, flip every captain. <laughs> flip all the blood brothers. Just flip them. <laughs> Just don't stop flipping them. Why aren't you flipping them? Flip them. <laughs> From Warner Brothers, it's J.R.R. Tolkien's Shadow of War. We'll, we'll be Wardour. Consultants next month. Mm, sure. Flipping captain. <laughs> I know it's the captain flipping good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this definitely the hamburger descriptions of crept back into it. <laughs> exactly. uh, flip the kernel. <laughs> <laughs> um, fuck. Uh, what were we talking about? Uh, it's stuff that gets us excited about games. Yeah, cause all yeah sorry, I was just on fully onto stuff that gets us excited then. Trade is great. I love seeing games in motion. I hate seeing cutscenes though. Like that's the exception I would say. I said mm. like Elder Scrolls Online, like introduces all its big updates with just incredibly lavish CGI scenes and that just reeks of total bullshit. Willkommen like, auf Brownland. <laughs> it's Morrowind, but it's really brown. <laughs> yeah, so maybe it's hard to show the actual game, but you know, seeing I remember the Bulletstorm trailers being really effective because like, mm. even though the tone was really aggressive and kind of obnoxious, which the tone of the game is, it turns out. <laughs> but seeing, you know, those amazing colours and ridiculous set pieces and stupid weapons working made me immediately want to play it. I always um, flinch a bit when I watch a, like a trailer for a, a new indie game or something and they've done like a live action one. Mm. And there, there are some of these that are extremely well liked. <laughs> um, I'll stop short of saying there are some of these that are great because I 
have never liked one i don't think i've never i've never seen one where i'm like oh i really want to buy that game now sometimes i've seen one where like in itself that is a funny video but at the end of it i still don't know if i want to buy the game um and those are so hard to make they're so expensive to make they're so difficult to make they're so hard to get right and just showing your game is well okay for a certain kind of game showing your game is easy uh for i don't know what i would do if you put me in charge of like tacoma I don't know how I show mm. that game. I don't. Know, I don't That's really know how. It, I know how I explain that game actually because Gone Home exists and you can refer to the genre. Gone Home actually would be the, the harder example because that genre was starting to exist, but it wasn't well established. You couldn't really say, "Oh, it's a Dear Esther like," because <laughs> that was not <laughs> no. uh, not um, well known enough. I think um, I agree that live action trailers have never, to my memory, been good, uh, except Strafe and possibly. Super Meat Boy, he said, question mark, <laughs> the, possibly the ultimate pod voice. Um, so Strafe had the one which was a kid playing a game and his head exploding, then his brother playing the game and his head also exploding. And mm. it was done in that very kind of like hardcore 80s video game commercial kind of way. So it was already a pastiche of, it was already a pastiche of a pastiche of a pastiche at that point. But it also showed the game mm. and kind of got across the kind of emotional core of what that game is, which is... Um, sort of throwback FPS shooter action that aspires to be as hardcore as you remember 90s shooters as being. Yeah. And the live action presentation kind of served a purpose in that context while also being extremely devolved digital about the entire thing. Hmm. Um, I think, um, so I had a conversation with, um, I was in Italy recently. It's one of the reasons I've been away so much. Um, and I was talking to Massimo Guarini, who's the, uh, lead of a studio called Oversonico, who made, um, who just made Last Days of June. Right. Came out relatively recently. But we had a really interesting chat, um, which you can read about in Edge magazine at some point in the future. Um, but about how games companies, games developers are kind of getting more comfortable with their idea of their own brands rather than their own products. Like traditionally, games development, particularly on a studio level, is kind of a bit reluctant to have like a studio level brand with a few notable exceptions mostly the kind of the the kind of ideas of the studio established purely through the games they make and they may oscillate wildly Mm. from sort of individual work to work for hire to something else whereas the idea of having a an ethos to transmit ahead of time is something that only a few studios have really managed, but that's something that can build excitement for a game ahead of time as well, which is why I bring it up. Like the notion, if you, if you can get to the point where your studio is known for producing a certain type of experience, having a certain sensibility, then stuff is exciting kind of just because. And I bring that up in the context of Devolver Digital, because I think they are interesting as a publisher for being almost more brand than game. And I mean that in a good way, right? Like the games they promote are often very simple, but there's a way that they promote them and a kind of sensibility that they, which is more like a record label. More of a punk record label. Yeah. Is what they like, mean. yeah. They're the closest thing games have to like mm. sub pop. Right. Mm. Um, and that means something in terms of what it communicates about your intent as a game. Mm. Like suddenly making a relatively simple arcade shooter is an act of punk purity because of the trappings given to it by the label. And that's another way of getting people excited about something. Um, but it's something that the games are very, very, very new to, to the extent that only a few companies are even mm. getting close to doing it. Our next question 
comes from James who writes, Dear Orange, oh, for fuck's sake, fuck's sake, James, for fuck's sake, James, <laughs> writes me, Chris. <laughs> I've had quite a lot of rum and he writes, Dear Origins and Oranges. <laughs> okay. That's hard, man. That's, that's designed. That was a trap. My work is organizing a 24-hour gaming marathon to raise money for charity, and I'm struggling to decide what games to bring along. What games would you choose to get you through the long hours between 1 and 6 a.m. when any sane person is asleep? Would you go for a heart-pounding experience to keep you awake, a messy local multiplayer so you can bond with your fellow marathoners, or something slow-paced to deal with your completely shot reaction times and fat, pizza-smeared fingers? <laughs> Cheers, James. Hmm... Something of oh, Diablo Three is a great, a great one. You just put it on the right difficulty level. Yeah, you just get a gentle. Is this because if someone asked you, Tom, play a game for twenty four hours, you just That's start playing? Just yeah. <laughs> That's what I do. If no one, if, if I'm left alone, yeah. it's like your idle animation, like in Sonic, instead of like wagging your finger with no stimulation and no one telling me to do anything. That's what would happen. I'd just play Diablo Three until death. Uh, but which suggests it might be a good three a.m. game for someone. Yeah, I I think probably the Elder Scrolls games are the ones where I've I've sort of lost track of life <laughs> when playing and just forgotten my own needs, <laughs> got too immersed. Right, which is I don't know if that makes them a good suggestion or a bad suggestion. I would I would go either for a grand strategy game mm. in this context. So like I didn't say this earlier, but the other thing I've been playing recently is Total War Warhammer more of. I know mm. I mentioned it on the last time I was on the podcast, yeah. but I I really like that game a lot mm. and. Um, I would happily play it forever. Yeah, that's well, a good shout. That's like, good shout. you know, if you if you set me up playing a War, Total Warhammer campaign at eleven p.m., I would definitely still be playing it by eight a.m. <laughs> if I didn't have to go to bed, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. So that's thing one. Thing two is any MMO because I think the feeling and Diablo maybe fits this as well. Any the feeling that you're working towards something, but like, without too much strenuous twitch effort. Yeah. yeah um you know i'll happily grind away do quests like destiny is the other thing oh, here, yeah. right like uh, it's out on pc very soon so hopefully in time for your charity marathon but just just play destiny for ages or play it yeah like we'll start a total war campaign because i'm at turn 144 of my scaven campaign at the moment nice. and it's still fucking great which is a miracle by total war standards cause it's, <laughs> yeah. the end game is exciting which yeah. is a real real improvement the uh they're i was interviewing lead designers about the upcoming patch which is due imminently in a matter of weeks which will glue together total warhammer one and two into the ridiculously huge new campaign so look to that maybe include that if it's within the right yeah play one massive total war campaign Hmm. that's a good suggestion or the paperclip game that tom (laughs) (laughs) it will keep you up but it won't be the next question comes from henry who fucking cops out of the title pun, which isn't necessary. We should yeah, stress. Still, if you want to send us a question, <laughs> you don't have to come with a, come up with a pun. Said this but if you do want now. to come up with a pun, maybe you might feel the need to cop out quite as hard as Henry did when he wrote, Dear Crates, Crows, and Bars. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't do anything to the first word. But <laughs> What's the best in-game computer system? Personally, I really liked Doom 3 for the way your crosshair turned into a mouse cursor on the virtual screen whenever you looked at it. The retro-futuristic green-screened computers of Alien Isolation were also great. Keep casting Henry from Germany. 
Um, yeah, I liked Praise for the same reason that he liked Dunes, but the mm. in-game your crosshair and the game, and the computer cursor were uh, one and the same. Um, just when you're looking at it, that's what's controlling the cursor, and they were, uh, I think, better than Doom Threes. They were uh, the interfaces were just huge they were just everything was designed for this the text was enormous the buttons were enormous uh it was very easy to click on anything you didn't have to sort of fiddle with it mm. yeah i mean my answer to this would normally be alien isolation if he hadn't yeah. mentioned it because of the very chunky kind of pretty satisfying just chunky and satisfying mm. input prompt hmm um hmm i mean i'm spending quite a lot of my time working on a game which is literally just an in-game computer system <laughs> uh i don't know if i can say that i very much like the um connecting to a hardline sequence in hack mode the game i work on because i didn't design that bit or have anything to do with it and it's very good it makes you feel like you're dialing up to a 56k modem nice. and then but then shit gets real in a way that it doesn't after you dial it <laughs> traditionally to a 56k modem. It's like you're dialing up to a 56k modem, but then on the other end of the line is Bad Boys 2. That's my Tom Francis approved 50 word <laughs> <laughs> summary of Hack Mode. Um, yeah, no, because legitimately in terms of traditional game systems, it would probably be alien. Yeah, I love that. So much effort went into creating that. That game is three years old now. I know. It's so good. I, I really want to replay it. I'm going to replay it this Christmas. Just because I loved it so much the first time. <clears throat> and uh, That is, interestingly, fun. another game where the AI has two brains. Ah. Yeah, because the alien has one brain and one brain that has limited environmental knowledge and another mm. brain that has very broad environmental knowledge. And the one that knows where you are feeds the other one clues. <laughs> yeah, that's and that's how it makes it look smart mm. join me on Logitech's gaming channel for more information about <laughs> games that have two brains our next question comes from John who writes dear steamship and stowaway extremely tenuous tourist not really podcast voice references aside I was interested in your comments regarding Cuphead having a tourist mode to experience the artwork. I was wondering if you felt similarly about a similar mode for the Souls games. I remember there being something of a hullabaloo with the idea. I also realized there are flaws with the analogy, but is this something that there ought to be more of in games in general and specifically in games that are skill-gated in such an extreme fashion? <gasps> Put some commas in you. <laughs> One counterpoint that comes immediately to mind is that people who play the game in its intended less forgiving mode may feel their experience has been cheapened by others being able to walk through it without having to commit as much effort to it. However, this strikes me as unnecessarily exclusive. What do you all think? Also, cheeky bonus question. The new Divinity sounds great and I'm very much on board. Do I have to play the origin? Oh my god. I'll run... <laughs> oh my god, you fuckers. <laughs> you mother... <laughs> Do I have to play the original? <laughs> the original to catch up on the story, or can I waltz into it without any priors? Keep up the excellent work and congrats, Tom F., on the success of Heat Signature. It's ace! Exclamation mark. Thank you. Cheers, John. I think you don't need to play Divinity 1 for Divinity no, yeah, totally. Not at all. Totally. And one of the strengths of its story being essentially kind of not concerned with mythology too much is yeah 
like you can just tip in wherever. Yeah, it's, it's great. It, it's like a well managed D and D campaign. If you kind of understand that skeletons probably bad, people probably good, <laughs> probably fine. Um, it it, it fundamentally concerned. Like so, I think they abdicated all right to hang a kind of serious like hand on chin. Let's think about this. What does it really mean? Plot. As soon as they decided that their their magic in their universe was going to be called Source, as in the Source Engine, S O U W R C E, but the uh the the people who wield this power would be called sorcerers yeah, but it yeah. would be spelled like source <laughs> it's all over that at the point like and yeah it's like you've yes you fucked it or saved it <laughs> <laughs> who knows which what was the first question again let's find out in brief <laughs> <laughs> um it's about uh, it's tourist Souls, modes it? in Dark Souls. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting question because, like, Dark Souls isn't especially pretty game and I'm not sure you'd go through it for the sake of seeing the sights. And also, I think that all of those areas are designed as combat areas and you experience them in through through the mode of combat and the pitfalls and the challenges that you experience, like those that geography creates is part of the combat in a really important way. So just to walk across a bridge that is really difficult because you've got three people throwing firebombs at you is you know that bridge takes on significance because of that combat challenge and if you were just to waltz through it i imagine it would seem like quite a mediocre aging game to be honest to mm. look at the places on the flip side tom mm. you and i have direct experience of a from software game <laughs> causing us problems when trying to tell the story we're trying to tell over time true. right yeah um if we had and i'm saying this is a genuine hypothetical right mm. if we had the option to play bloodborne on narrative mode mm in order to do our playthrough, do you think we would have done it? Don't know. That's a good question. I think, for me personally, the challenge is such an important part of those games, and the repetition is an important part of those games. But if we were creating uh, a video series where people might not necessarily want to see all the repetition, <laughs> I think we've learned. Incidentally, <laughs> then friends. we probably might we might well have taken that that way out and also i mean if it's easy to relatively easy to make i don't see why you can't give people who want that the option you know i don't yeah. think it's, i don't the, the part of the question that asks whether it takes away from people who put in the challenge i don't see why it should at all i think no, i agree the um the concern uh hypothesized about in the question is uh for person a uh who's playing it you know in hard mode um does it take away from their experience if person b can see it all without having to overcome those challenges and i feel like it shouldn't and and hopefully doesn't um but there's another factor where if everybody can switch between narrative and challenge mode at any given time when you're stuck on a challenge uh the -hmm. temptation to switch to that narrative mode just to sort of see the next area just to get to the next bit and then maybe switch back uh could undermine whatever the, the the sort of the the brick wall of the challenge is, is trying to evoke in you that the sort of sense of hopelessness or the sense of triumph when you do overcome it or whatever um so maybe if you were going to include something like that maybe you make it something where you can't switch it, turn it on or off it's just like from the start of the game if you're just not interested in playing the game you just want to see stuff you can do that um but once you start you kind of uh, can't switch in and out just to remove that temptation because the temptation could be harmful but you're so you're so in the palm of the developer because the developers often misjudge what difficulty spikes look like you know you can go yeah. into a game and suddenly you know 10 hours in run into a mad difficulty spike and you've built your character in a yeah. certain way you know um and maybe giving the players the tools to work their way around that stuff is, is yeah personally is, i would want that like that would be helpful for me because i'm someone who does uh struggle with the difficulty of those games um 
but that's the that's the situation where i can imagine it in some way t- diminishing the pleasure of people who like them exactly as they are right yeah. now you know what i would do dark souls i'd have a mode where you can't die basically at all but every time you run out of health you're kind of reduced to this kind of like stumbling screaming agonized <laughs> baby zombie man <laughs> Um, they can only kind of like limply swing their sword around and kind of like drag themselves to the next bonfire. Hmm. So your progress is never slowed, but it's really shit to run out of health. <laughs> but rather than just dying, going back to the bonfire, repeating the section and going to the next bonfire, hmm. you kind of crawl to the next bonfire, <laughs> light it, and then get to the next bit. So you're always really glad to be whole again, which is a very Dark Souls theme. Ish. Close enough. Hmm. But not... um you know, we don't want to die. But if you do, it doesn't impede your progress. Mm. I don't know if that would work at all, <laughs> apart from be funny for like 10 minutes. But, you know, hey, what are you paying me for? Not that, certainly. <laughs> <laughs> How many brains would uh, your zombie form have? How many brains? Two. Uh, only the Three. one. Your brain. Your brain. Okay. You, Tom. Hmm. That's how player control characters work. Yes, it is. <laughs> doesn't sound like a good solution. Sounds no. like a really annoying solution. <laughs> well, I mean, this is your punishment. It's a very Dark Souls punishment for choosing narrative mode where you can't die. Uh, yeah, I, I, that's kind of the worst thing you could do is, the, <laughs> is invite people who join narrative experiences. I dare you. The best to, idea I've ever had. To, to start a narrative experience and then punish them by turning them into a screening. <laughs> oh, and why is it like this? They bellow. Is why they didn't of... I choose normal difficulty? Look at the Let me die. Uh, so, yeah, maybe 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 not no <laughs> maybe not do that okay maybe not do that all right that's all the questions we have time for <laughs> sad end <laughs> if you'd like to send us a question for a future episode you can email us at questions at crate and you can also tweet us at crate and crowbar you can also if you like Check us out on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash Creighton Crowbar, where you'll find our Bloodborne series, which is relevant to the previous discussion. If you'd like to watch two people beat their head against a wall for a long time before giving up and wandering off to do something else. <laughs> also, um, you can find various YouTube versions of this episode. As ever, the Creighton Crowbar is supported by our extremely kind Patreon backers who do the phenomenal work of allowing the, us to do this every week. And in future weeks if you'd like to find out more about the patreon and getting involved you can do so at patreon.com forward slash crate and crowbar it's the same as everything else there's a theme here if you'd like to follow us as individuals on twitter if you must if you must drag and refresh that endless attention engine (laughs) to the detriment of yourself your friends (laughs) your life your democracy your country and your world you can do so followers out of this (laughs) You can do so. You can find Tom Senior on Twitter at pcgludo.com. It's not .com. (laughs) (laughs) You fucked that up, Tom. I did. Go there anyway, see what happens. pcgludo.com forward slash Twitter forward slash pcgludo. If it doesn't exist, uh, I'm going to start that website. Tom Francis? Uh, pentadact.com is where you can find a link to my Twitter, which is pentadact. (laughs) (laughs) That's actually true. Yeah, Yeah, that is legit. Um, if you go to instagram.com forward slash C Thurston in my Instagram bio, you can find a link to my Twitter, which is at C Thurston. That's C T H U R S T E N dot com dot com forward slash 
For fuck's Twitter sake. Again, for some reason. <laughs> Forward slash Twitter again for some reason. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks for, for listening, everyone.